This is the Jason Kavnis Experience, hosted by Jason Kavnis. Join Jason as he talks to small business owners and startup founders and other interesting people as we gain great insights about business, people, leadership, HR, and how each guest strives to be great every day. The Jason Kavnis Experience is sponsored by Kavnis HR. Kavnis HR delivers HR to companies with 49 or fewer people across the United States with our platform that automates HR products and services while giving you access to a dedicated HR business partner for more complicated HR challenges. Small business loses an estimated $10,000 per employee per year because of unreliable HR. Small business owners are spending an average of 25% of the time on HR, time that would be better spent taking care of their people, their customers, and building their business. Cavernous HR saves small business owners time and money on, on their HR. Sign up at www.cavernousHR.com or email me at jasoncavernous at cavernousHR.com to learn more. Cavernous HR, focus on your business. We've got your HR. Hello, and welcome to Jason Cavernous Experience. I'm your host, Jason Cavernous. Our guest today is Glenn Akromoff. Glenn, you ready to be great today? I absolutely am. So, Glenn, you know, we're just not talking about horse racing, right? Can you talk yeah. about your love for horse racing? Sure. I... Uh... Interestingly enough, uh, it was probably about seven, eight years ago. Um, I'd been going to the track. My grandfather got all the family into that. He loved going to the track. But I'd been going a couple of years, and then um, the uh, there was a, a club at Emerald Downs. And you bought in for $500. You got to own a racehorse, and that's all you paid. And so my wife got it for me for Christmas because she knew I, I really enjoyed it. And we... We enjoyed it. They taught us how to be owners, and um, and we went ahead and uh, after the first year, we went ahead and bought one in a small group. We'd met three or four people that we that we all got along. We all had the same goals, and we went and bought a horse. So we've been owning race horses for seven years, and I got into it because I I like to gamble and I like watching the horses. And um, the more I've got into it, the more amazing they are. You find out how they are. Now, how do you tell if a horse is actually going to be successful? Like, is it based on the like, breeding? Is like you just look at it. Like, how do you like? Is there science or art like deciding like how to wire a horse? Like, how to decide like, this horse might be like a winner in the future? It, it's both. It's a science and an art. Uh, yeah, there the breeding it start always starts with the breeding, and of course, you can spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on on a, a baby racehorse before it races. Um, we of course don't spend that kind of money, but, um, yeah, you look at their breeding and then you look at their, um, how they're built, you know, like humans, there are certain humans that are built to run long, to run short and, and horses are just like that. And you, if you look at them and we, we hire a, a trainer who, who knows horses really well and they help us pick one out and we buy one and get started. So obviously this is on the same level as, you know, with the- Kentucky, Kentucky, right? right? But like, how how well known is the Seattle or Seattle Washington as far as horse racing, horse racing circles? I I would say it's 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 kind of a middle range track. Um, it's known pretty well because it's the wet when our summers are really nice. Uh, the racing is um, tends to be com- fairly competitive, 
and we're known for actually having pretty good crowds here, um, which is not every track, even the big ones see that every day, but we do. Is Emerald Downs the only like horse racing track in the state of Washington? It's the only one active right now. Yeah. Okay. There've been a there's one in Yakima and there's one over in Tri Cities, but they don't they haven't run in a few years at those tracks. And do, do you ride yourself? No. No. Well, I you I I grew up riding uh, horses a little bit, but not anymore. Okay. And like and so how many horses are you vested in right now? Just one, Just one this year. The most we've had at one time is four. Okay. And like so when these horses like go to different tracks, how do they how do they travel? Like they they go by like, like semi truck, they fly. Like how does that work? They can fly. Okay. That's expensive, and we don't fly ours. But they go by. Um, you, you can see them uh, anytime. There's they've got horse trailers with somewhere between two and and eight horses in them, and you can see them going up and down I five because there are okay. tracks in Florida in town of California. Too. And is there is there, is there like prime um, horse racing age for horses? Yeah, they start when they're they can start when they're two. I I would say it's four or five okay. is when they're at their best. They're most mature, and um, but horses have run run really well and won big time, big money races up to the age of nine and ten. Okay, so I, I think everyone knows like horses like I think Seattle Slough, some other famous yeah. ones. What about like what I'll call like the average horse horses I race like what happens to them like this like live an average life they come fit and six there all the time make the owner a little bit of money like how's that work yeah they I, if they were doing fifth or six all the time you'd probably retire them eventually but um, the lower level horses um, they love their jobs just as much as the big ones and they love to run and when and so you run them when you when they're ready to run and you keep them healthy. And like I said, they can run. There are some horses who've run past 12 years old because they like it and they stay healthy. I would say usually eight or nine is when they, okay. they're retired. And then when they're retired, they, um, that's one of the things that's important in racing is that you take care of your horses and you, you're committed to their health. The so rest there's like of some kind of like retirement home for there horses? Are, there okay. is. There's a couple of those. A lot of times they're, they get another career because they tend to be athletic. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them become jumpers. Or trail horses or pets. So I mean, horses are basically like a pet, right? I mean, like when they're racing, not as much okay. because you you know you you're focused on keeping them as a primed athlete. Uh-huh. After their career is over, yeah, they they become a lot of times they become pets, and they and once they calm down because they tend to be high wired mm-hmm. as athletes, that most of them make really good really good pets. Yeah, and um, I might make me make, make this up. But aren't horses like kind of can kind of sentimental sometimes? Like not sentimental, but what looking for like a high strung or yeah, yeah especially thoroughbreds. Okay. They they tend to be. Uh, some of them are really laid back. It's amazing. They all, I think that's the neat thing about them. They all have very different personalities, just like people. And some of them get nervous when they're on the track, or get nervous around too many people. Some are love it and will pose for you if you get a camera <laughs> out. It's just. Uh, that's what makes them makes them so interesting, and the fact that they love they love to run um, is, and they love to please the human beings yeah. that take care of them. It's an amazing dynamic. And how do you uh, like pick the the jockey? How, like how you, I'm, I'm assuming the jockey has to mess a horse, right? Yeah, you try to. Um, the 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 trainer normally does that. Okay. So the owner and the the owner and the trainer 
um, talk about that, but usually the trainer has a favorite that they trust with the all the horses that they train and or a couple of them that they go to and um, and I, I, in our time we have picked our jockey a handful of times they've either asked and said do you have a preference and sometimes we do sometimes we don't um, but yeah it's 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 usually the trainer okay and I think they have main horse checks of course Kentucky I think New York State and California right. Yeah. Are there any other like states like Fl- Florida is very big. Florida, Florida. Yeah. There's a, there's probably, um, there's a number of states that have it. There, okay. um, Florida is a big one. Louisiana has a number of them and, um, as well as New Jersey. Yeah. So you're a part-time owner of the horse, right? You no, own, you, you, we own it all the time. All the time. Okay. Yeah. So then how did you, um, pick your trainer? How does that work? Um, our, our initial trainer we picked um, because she was part. She was the one that was for the club. We got to know her. Got to know her and her husband, who both trained, and we we stayed with them. They both have retired, so um, we have uh, we've been with a couple of trainers with this horse, and we're just kind of trying to figure it out. And this group is a partnership. There's like I think there's 14 of us that are membership here. Normally, there's just a you know, for us, there's just a couple of us that go in together, but we like the horse. This was a good opportunity, and the group that we're, we're with is really great, too. What does the term mutter mean for horse racing? What is that? It, it's when the, when it's what it sounds like. When, when the track is really wet, um, some horses hate it, and some horses just love to be on the sloppy okay. mess, and okay. so they're called mutters. Okay, okay. And, like, what's, like once, you got, once you, got, you got your horse... How long did it take you to figure out, okay, this horse might make me some money or might be the real deal, or is this a process to do that? It is a process. Sometimes it can take, you, you know, right away. Um, the one that, you know, we have one running today at Emerald Downs, and and her first race was very good. She didn't win, but she finished second. It was her first race ever. Her second race was not good, and so this is her third race. But she showed some talent in her first race, so you kind of get to know as you as you've been an owner a while, you can see whether they have ability that you also, when you're watching it to gamble on horses, you get to know which ones are going to be good or not. Um, Making money is always a different thing. One of the, one of the things they say in horse racing is if you want to make a million dollars in horse racing, invest 2 million. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a, and there, don't get me wrong. There's lots of great people out there who are making money at it, but we, we do it. We're not a big money outfit, so we do it for the fun and, and to be a part of it and to be a part of the horses. Any plans on buying another horse anytime soon? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that. We would love to um, get another one. Our smaller group is looking at at maybe um, buying something in the fall. So you might not know this, but like, what what, what goes on Emerald Downs for? It's not horse racing season. It's just like closed down for the rest of the year. Like, well, they they do they. They have, um, they do gambling there, so they do watch horse racing from other places mm-hmm. there. So tell it, um, um, tell about gambling. Or something? Yeah, it's I, 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 I'll, I'll, I'll remember what it is. Uh, simulcasting. That's okay. What they call simulcasting. It. And then, um, and then they, they do a lot of events. They do weddings there. They do. I don't, I don't know that. Yeah, there's a. Fourth floor, there's a kind of a banquet room, and um, 
and they do a number of, of things out there. So. Okay. So besides the horse race, what other hobbies? So what else do you do? Do you do for fun? Uh, travel a lot. My wife and I travel. Um, I'm. I've got one more state to get to, <laughs> and I've actually stayed overnight in all of them. That's as an adult. I was at an in it, most of them as a kid too. This North Dakota. Okay. So um, not sure how I'm going to make that, but I will. <laughs> um, and then we've we've traveled to Europe recently. We went to Barbados this okay. this fall or this. Uh, any any your favorite places so far? I, we went to the Mediterranean. I loved Italy okay. and Greece. Yeah, Italy's um, a great country. Yeah, particularly Italy. I could spend a lot of time in Italy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely. What's a place you've traveled to that you really like? Most people are like, you like this place? Why? You know, like, it would be surprising that people, that you, um, you would surprise people that you say you liked it so much. I would say it's probably, um, I mean, I, I like traveling back to my hometown. And it's it's a little dinky town in in uh, upstate New York, and uh, we were just back there in July, and I love going back there because things not a lot of things change there, so it kind of gives you that sense of security. How often you get to go, you go you go back? Um, it's been every four or five years lately. Okay. Um, we were going to go back sooner, but COVID kind of messed that up. Yeah. But um, so it was five years since we've been there this time, but. Um, get to see old friends and I have some friends who've lived there since we were kids and get to see them, get to see, and it's, it's an old Eastern town. So, okay. so besides North Dakota, what's the next place you want to go to? <laughs> well, we're actually going to Florida, um, here in the next couple of weeks. Okay. Um, and, uh, that's the second time in the last year we're, we're looking at maybe retiring there. We'll okay. See. So. Do you think you're actually going to, going to retire? Me, no. I really okay. won't. I, I, I just think, you know, entrepreneur type mm-hmm. thing. I just, I don't see me fully retiring. I'll always be doing something. Yeah, I think somebody called it like, you know, somebody said that they're going to work until the ten toes up, you know, meaning yeah. they're going to work <laughs> yeah. until they're in the grave, right? Right. Yeah. If, if, if physically I can't do stuff mm-hmm. anymore, then that's a different story. Mm-hmm. But for now, I don't, you know, a lot of people, my wife's getting ready to retire and stuff something she planned for and and i'm really happy for her but for me i don't that doesn't fit me yeah i think stats show that people actually retire like stop doing they don't do anything i think they die within eight or nine years right yeah yeah. because you got to keep doing something else because you just shut down everything shuts down and you go to early grave i think yeah yeah and i like the i like what i'm doing and you know like my son says it's been a life it's been your life's work to do what you're doing I'll just continue to make it my life's work until the life's up. Yeah. So next, talk about what does gratitude mean to you? Gratitude? That's always an interesting one. I think for me, the true test of gratitude is when you're 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 grateful for something that is not a positive. And so for me, an example of that is if there's someone who comes into your life, whether at work or whether um, a neighbor or whatever, and they and they aren't super positive with you, right? They challenge you in a number of ways. They make you angry or, or whatever. They're, they're, they're a gift to you if you can, see, if you can be grateful for them. And um, that's been a hard-learned lesson for me, of course. But I, I think that, to me, that's what it means is when you're grateful for things that were brought into your life that teach you, um, whether they're positive or negative, 
yes, it's easy when you get an award and you get to stand up. That's to be grateful for that is it's fairly easy. But when you go through a very tough time and you come out on the other side and you're grateful for the lessons you learn because you know you're going to grow from it and be better for it, that's that's what gratitude means. Do you think gratitude is something you can learn or you just have gratitude from the beginning? No, I think you can learn it. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's times in your life when you won't have it. And and you you know, when I'm struggling the most, that's what I try to go to is to find something good and and have gratitude, but there are times in my life I haven't had it. I've had to learn to use it some more and become grateful for what I have. So what about people how for this? Like when people are like on bad times and having a bad luck, right? Maybe they lost their job or you know, they're really sick. How do you recommend they continue to have gratitude when things like seem like everything's going to shit for their lives? You yeah. Know? Yeah. And been there, done that. I think we all have. I think the I think the first thing is to 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 Either do it in the morning because it's been proven over and over, you know, that if you're positive, that you can kind of change your outcomes. You can change what's happening to you by changing your attitude. And so you, that starts with gratitude. And I think you, you, I, I, having struggled, you know, recently, that's what I, I do is I wake up every morning and before I get up, I think of three things I'm grateful for. Even if it's I get to get up today, right? Whatever, even if it's just very basic, find something. And and that's practicing. And then pretty soon something start the 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 universe will conspire with you to start creating more of them. And uh, and I've watched that happen certainly in my work but also in my life. We're we're doing that it's changed the way things happen. And then those things, that long list of, I mean, I had one period in my life where I had six weeks where every time the phone rang, and it rang a lot, it was bad news. And it got to be really difficult after five weeks of when is this going to end? But that's what I started doing. I said, okay, what what can I find good today? What can I, and, and I did, and it broke, and then a lot of good things happened. So I could be wrong, but I think people are either predisposed to be positive or negative, right? Yeah. So if someone was predisposed to be negative, how do they become positive? Right? Is it a matter of like fake it till you make it? Do they like fake being positive or they be the true selves? What do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think people are negative for a for a number of reasons. It it's not just because you're a negative person. There's something that's happened to you in your life or many things that it, and you have this made some decisions about yourself. That says I am not. I am not good. I am not this. I am, and so you focus on being negative, and then and then that becomes your protection, like a self defense mechanism. Yeah, so to speak. yeah. I'm not going to be hurt by anyone or anything because I'm already negative, and I know it's coming, so I'm ready for it. That sort of attitude, and so for people like that, it's not easy. And you sometimes you need to get help. I find them in the work I do regularly. And when you, um, I mean, one thing is to hang out with some positive people. <laughs> that helps. Yeah. Um, because. But isn't that crazy? Like people are negative, like down, have darkness. They send, seem like they tend to seek out other negative and they, they do. people with darkness, right? I, I think it's because they want validation that they exist. Yeah. And, and that truly is what's going on. I, do I exist? Yeah, I exist and, and I feel pain. 
some of them just want people to feel what they feel. I want to, I want someone to feel what I feel, this negative energy I have. And so they express their lives that way. And, uh, but, but I think the message is you don't have to. Yeah. And you can change that. And the one person that controls it is you. Yeah, definitely. And then, like you talk about people being hurt from the past. How do you, how does someone like forgive what's done in the past, right? That is hard, yeah. right? That, that, that is, it, for me, I've had those. And the way I got through it was to realize that, number one, I, I, a few of those people I met, they were, you know, I met them later in life. And I realized that I saw them differently because they were older than me, right? It felt they had done something to me when realizing they were just trying to live their lives and they were doing the best they could, but they didn't know either. And so you, you know, for me, there was a couple of coaches in my life who were very influential and then, and they influenced me some negative ways, right? I felt like I was mistreated. Some of that might've been true, but, but it also is a teenager going through whatever, thinking he's a better athlete than he is and all that stuff. But you make up all those things about yourself and then and about the situation. And then when I met one of the coaches as an adult, um, I realized it's not, had nothing to do with me. He was a young coach. He was trying to figure it out so, himself. So it wasn't like you didn't say, you didn't realize, okay, this guy's like, well, he's an incompetent coach. No wonder. Right. <laughs> right. Something totally different. Right. Right. And, I, and so I think that's the part for, for forgiveness is that realizing that, and, and there are some people have done awful things to each other over human history. Yeah. And so I, I don't want to diminish that or anybody's experience. But when you, when you realize that not forgiving them is actually hurting you, not them. That really was what turned it for me. What's the saying that if you don't forgive someone, or you say anger at someone, it's actually pouring toxic into you, not the other person, yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and and I think they, you give them control of your life, and, and, and they're probably not even thinking about you. No, they're not. Like they're living in your head rent free, and they yeah, like, like who the hell is Jason? What, it, what, you know, like <laughs> that's exactly it. And so I, I mean, the coach remembered me, but I wasn't any, you know, it wasn't interactions with like i remember them so i think that's that's the big part is again you have control of what you decide to believe and and hating someone or being angry with someone because they did something to you in the past is only hurting you so is anything that you think of that would be unforgivable that one is hard i mean it i i have some of the experiences in my life, you know, you think, how can, how can people do that? Especially when they do things to kids. Yeah. Um, uh, violence or sexual assault or, or whatever. Um, but I, I think people can change. And, um, and you, again, that goes back to that gratitude piece. Yeah. Understanding that people have live, have things that have happened to them that have, that they haven't dealt with that caused them to do certain things. And it's not an excuse for the people who do that, by the way, I don't, I don't think that you're accountable for everything you do. Um, but, um, coming to understand what, what led someone to do something, um, helps it, um, 
helps you deal with it. But I mean, you know, my dad was a police officer and we had a fear of him not coming home every day. And that was a real fear. And the day he retired, you could feel it come off of us. Yeah. Um, would I be able to forgive someone who, who ended his life and didn't let him, my dad come home? I don't know that. And I know there's a lot of people who face that. Um, so it's, for me, it's, it's not up to me to, to help them live their lives and, and forgive them in that way. But could I let go of it so it didn't poison me? Yeah. Yeah, I know like you saw the time in a court case where like someone kills someone and you have to do a press conference with a family member like we forgive the killer. I'm yeah. like, you're a way better person than I am. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot imagine. Like if someone kills someone close to me, I'm like, man, no, I, yeah. I couldn't do it. I don't think I could either. Yeah. But I also understand that dynamic. They realize that that would hurt them and yeah. the memory of their their family member, not not the person who's yeah. going to jail for it or or whatever. So yeah, that's a that is a, a brutal dynamic, and I think it's very personal. Oh yeah, definitely for for all of us when we go through whatever life brings us, forgiveness is a a powerful thing that actually can help you free you. But getting to it is a whole different yeah, matter. Tough one, yeah, <laughs> and so you say you say thank you three times every day, um, in the morning. I I actually do it now. I do it in the in the in the morning, I'm thankful for kind of the big things in my life. And then um, before I go to sleep, I do the same thing. What are, what are three things I'm thankful for during the day? And how long have you been doing that? Um, off and on for 12 years. And have you found this made an impact on your life? Yeah. It, it's interesting when, I, when things go bad and I forget to do it or I don't do it because I'm upset or whatever. <laughs> um, it snowballs. The negativity <laughs> snowballs. <laughs> so, so, so you wake up in the morning, say thank you three times, have a horrible day, and the day you like, fuck this day. <laughs> that's exactly it. Why? I'm not doing that. I'm not thankful for anything today. And then tomorrow ends up being, you know, a little harder. So I, um, I have noticed a positive impact. Um, it, it's interesting. It doesn't show up every minute, right? But um, the one thing that I've learned is that you don't know what's going on in the rest of the world. You know what's going on in your, your yeah. sphere, but sometimes you impact somebody or something's happening and percolating that you don't know anything about right away. Yeah, people don't realize just by saying, like, saying thank you or hi to someone, like, you know, make the day or just, you know, yeah. a little act of kindness, like, I mean, keep someone from, like, killing themselves yeah. or doing something bad, you know, like, it's, it's, you never know what someone else is going through. Yeah, I think that's, that's something I talk with when I go into organizations and I'm working with them as a leader, you should always be polite. And to me, a genuine thank you and, and saying please rather than barking orders do this now, right. <laughs> Makes a big difference in how people react to you, but also in, in how their day goes. And like you said, you don't know what's going on sometimes, you know, there are people who will come to work even though they've had a death in the family yeah. just because I got it. I got to do something, and you start barking orders or doing something, it just lowers them. But if you say, you know, thank you, I really appreciate you doing that for me today. You know, you can change their state, so maybe they can go home and and come up with three things to be grateful. Yeah. So next, 
Talk about humility. Well, that's that's become a well. First of all, that's a, I think that's a challenge for everyone. It certainly has been in my life is to remain humble, um, and I've had a lot of life teach me to be humble. Um, I think it's a core principle of any good leader to be humble. Um, and I talk a lot about being great at something. I think to be great at something, you have to border on arrogance, but you have to not tell people about it. So I call it humble arrogance. And I think that for me, like gratitude, when I, when I show gratitude for things and things go better, when I'm focused on serving someone else, then life goes better for me. And I feel really good about helping someone. And to me, that's core of being humble is it's bigger than me. This world is, you know, there are a lot of things more important than what I need today. Um, and if I'm giving to people and I'm, and I'm giving without expecting anything in return, then um, that is returned to me. So let's, let's suppose let's talk about adding value, right? So I always say, I always feel to add value, give value to people, right? Mm-hmm. Well, what about this advice? Right? Suppose you did something, someone 10 times, right? Nothing really big, like like small, little favors, whatever, 10 times, right? And then the 11th time, you actually need some of this person. It's something like real small, like say, do an intro to someone they know, right? But they tell you no. So you like, so you be like, option A, fuck that guy, I'm not doing that with him again, or B, keep on giving the value, or another option. Well, I think A is about, my e would be about my ego. That'd be about me. And so that would be not being humble in my mind. Um, I would I would keep doing what I do, and I have many times where, um, you know, I had a thing 10 years ago where I lost a job, and there weren't a lot of people that were around for me. Um, and they had their lives. They were doing their own thing. And, um, and I, you know, for a while, I was like, this is, <laughs> this is, where are you? Right. I need you. Um, and ask a few people and they were busy or whatever. And, and after I got through that, I realized, um, that was about, some of that was about me. I needed to be in a quiet space and learn my lesson. And I wasn't going to do that with just complaining to someone about what had happened to me. And so I learned that, you know, they, they weren't there for me because I didn't really need them to be. And, um, and to me, it was about that time I needed to focus on healing myself and and remaining humble and not be, um, I mean, that's the dichotomy of what I'm, I'm trying to say is I had to focus internally and, and, and work on some things that I needed to work on that no one could help me with. Um, but, um, but all of those people who I thought should have been there, I have been there for them since and will continue to be. And do I think many of them will show up sometimes when I need them? Yeah. And I have a core group that shows up every time. So that's really what I, is there a time when someone should not be humble? Like when somebody, I won't say cocky, but like overconfident and not be humble. Yeah. I think as a leader, when there's a, 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 I had an example of this where I was, uh, 
I was working in a work unit and someone got injured and severely didn't know if he was going to make it. And someone had to be the leader and be confident that everything was going to be okay and make the other 75 people know that we're going to be all right. And that was me. And I didn't hesitate. I didn't worry about being humble. I didn't worry about anybody. Um, I needed to exude confidence, and I did. And I think the the test of humility is when you don't continue when it's no longer needed, <laughs> and which I did. I I was getting ready to leave that organization as part of our program, and I needed to ramp back up. I had started to exit, and I had to ramp back up, and then had to fast ramp back down. But they needed me, and that's what they needed, and that's as a leader, it was my job to do it. And I did it and, and then exited fairly quickly. And was that painful for, for me? Yeah. But, um, they were okay. They knew they were going to be okay. And the injured guy recovered and everything was, was good. So. so do you think, what do you think makes a good leader, a great leader is like they're soft taught something that's having them. They're like they, they go through different experiences. What do you think? I think it's, um, I think your life experience, I think some, first of all, someone knowing as a great leader, you need to know who you are. It starts there. You need to know what you're good at and what you're not and be willing to admit that and say, okay. Yeah. I always use the story that, um, do not put me a nail and a hammer anywhere around each other. I just can't do it. There's lots of things I can do, but I learned very early on as a maintenance worker and early in my career that I couldn't do that. It's awful at it. And so I learned to cut. I learned to cut the wood rather than, than use the hammer and nails. And so um, I think that's important to have that self-awareness of what you're good at and what you're not. Under, build on your strengths. Help find people to, to cover your weaknesses. And, um, and then I think empathy, um, and maybe more than that, I, I, I say this a lot, you don't have to like your team every day, the people that you lead, but you got to love them. And, you know, everyone's people don't realize how big a difference that is. Right. <laughs> right. Like, I think we all have family members we love, but we don't like them. Right. Right. Or people were like, good. For, like, yeah. I think that's a big difference. Yeah. And as a leader, in order to lead people. Um, in the right direction, no matter what you're doing, you need to, you need to care about. And uh, you have to learn. I think there's a lessons to learn in your life to be able to care about people, to know that, like we were talking about being humble, to know that, that people go through things that you haven't, both good and bad, and they will. And, and to know that if you care about them, They'll know it. Human beings know whether someone cares about them. Have that sense, and they know if you're being sincere about it. And if, if what I found in my leadership career is, if someone knows that I care about them, and I, that's part of my mantras. I will, I will help you understand that I do care about you, and I care about all of you. That they will, they will be loyal. They will give you their best, they will grow, uh, they will likely become leaders on their own, which is really what you want, um, 
And, and for some people we were talking about earlier, for some people, especially in a job nowadays, as a leader, you could be the only person they know cares about. And that is a powerful thing. It's a heavy responsibility, but it's a reality in today's world. So as a leader, and to me, yes, humble, you have to be grateful for what you have. You have to be, know when to be a strong leader and when to, when to back off. Because both are needed. I, I, I see all these memes on LinkedIn, and I look at them, and I go, if it was only that simple. It's very yeah. complicated to be a great leader. And I think you learn your lessons. You're willing to learn your lessons in public as a leader. It's an also a skill. Um, everyone knows when you make a mistake. So why would you try to hide it? But if you own it and you show people, you model how to handle a mistake, which to me is you understand what that mistake was, you make up for it, or you fix it, and then you learn the lesson that you're supposed to learn, and then you move on. And if, if we can all do that, then, then we learn faster. Like they say, fail fast so that you can learn faster. And that's a, that's a powerful workplace or a powerful organization that has a leader or leaders like so I was watching like college football earlier today, like some some news conferences, mm-hmm. and had Nick Saban right. He said something like really like got me right. So they so they got beat by Texas last week, yeah. and he said, "If we don't take the opportunity to learn from this failure, that's a true failure." Yeah, and yeah. So I thought that was really like really like like key right there. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You you um, if you've got to learn, you know they they talk about learning lessons, um, and I think we do this in our lives. You know, you you don't learn the lesson fully, and you and something happens in your life that says, "Oh, you didn't learn that one yet. You need to go back and do it again." Um, but I think I think that's that's the mindset. For for me, as an example in my life, I would I I was a water meter reader years ago, and I applied thirteen times to move up to the next level. After F, the first six, I was mad, I was bitter, all that, and then I realized. I'm not doing a good enough job. What can I learn? So I started asking people. And so every time, what was even more challenging is that after I did that, there were people that I taught how to do the job that got the job instead of me. And then I realized, well, you know, I'm a pretty good teacher. There's something I can learn from that. And you just, I just kept learning and learning. And eventually the job, I got, I got the job. And after doing it that many times, the reward was pretty amazing. But I realized through that whole time that I had I had eight or ten lessons to learn before I I could move on, um, and that was embarrassing because it was very public. Everyone knew, you know, in the whole organization. You know, Glenn's tried years thirteen. Let's see, <laughs> but um, but I also knew at, on the last one that I was ready. I'd prepared. I knew. I checked all my lessons. I'd learned them. I remained humble. I was grateful for what I had. Um, I I had I had gone to I had worked harder because I wasn't working hard enough before. I just had assumed that I was going to get the job because I'd been there long enough. And, and so I think that that's what it is. It's just learning learning those lessons. Sometimes it takes three or four times. So thirty times to me that shows a lot of resilience. Can you talk about how how you were so resilient during this process? Um. I, 
like I said, the first five or six times I wasn't, I was like, it was devastating. I was all, you know, I was just about, I, I never got to a point where I thought I would quit though. Interestingly enough. Um, I think after that, it just became, okay, I got to learn a lesson. I went and talked to people. I went and talked to the people who interviewed me. Um, and what I wanted to do more than anything was, um, in the process was gain respect of the people who, not that I needed to, but that I thought, um, that I thought were, were good people. You know, I just, that was part of the thing. I just wanted to earn, earn people's respect. And, and that's kind of what ended up being part of it is learn my lesson, earn, earn, earn respect and trust of other people. So they know I can do the job. And, um, and it, I tend to be competitive and driven. And, and for me, that was, was a drive. I am going to win this one. I'm going to do what it takes to win and get this job. And when I got it, it was, uh, it would not have meant as much if I got it the second or third time for sure. Interestingly enough, the next level that I went up took me 13 times again. <laughs> and, and I, but I knew the, I knew the process. I followed the same process. I'm like, I don't know why I got to do this again, but okay. And, um, and to be fair, I was skipping a couple levels in that in that process. I went from being a maintenance worker to being a supervisor, and there's a couple of levels in between. Um, but um, but I used the same model and I used the same drive, knowing that I how good it would feel when I got there, and it was much easier the second time. And then thankfully, I haven't had to do that. <laughs> So back to caring for people, how do you, I can't think of the word I need to use, but how do you like match caring for people to like when you actually need to let them go, how you combine that? Because it doesn't seem like you care for someone, you're not going to fire them, right? So how do you match those two yeah, things? I don't think that's true, actually. Um, I learned a long time ago, I had a coworker. Um, he, uh, he, he was, he, he was a drug addict. He had stayed to work work at our workplace he'd been popped on drug tests and he he got finally they fired him then he came back he got he got clean and then he came back as a temporary maintenance worker and worked his way back up and and when he one of the things he told me because we worked closely together was he was so thankful for the guy who fired him because it took him to his bottom and he went and got help right after that he said if he hadn't fired me i wouldn't have done it I would have kept on going the way I was. I might not have lived. So I've always remembered that conversation and realized that sometimes as letting someone go, I'm helping them to their bottom. And um, it is painful. It is horrible to let someone go, if you care, especially if you go about caring about them, right? It's very hard to do. Um, but I've let a lot of people go, and a lot of the reason was is because I knew that. And I've had a couple of them knew I cared, knew I needed to let him go because of various reasons. And actually I, twice I fired people and got a hug from them because they knew I cared and they knew that I was, and I was transparent about, I have to do this. This is what's best for the organization. And it's my job to protect the organization, to protect the team and to help you at the same time. And that's what we're doing. And so I think the big thing is you don't dispose of them when you, when you let them go. 
you don't just let them go out into the world. If they want to stay engaged, you stay engaged with them and you still care about them. You help them get through whatever they are. If they need to go to rehab, if they need retraining, whatever they need. Because there's also a lot of people that have been let go over the years that, that I have that were in the wrong job. And they went and found the job they wanted to be in and now their life is so much better. So I think that's how you, how I work my way through. So next, talk about this. Um, I think I found this on your LinkedIn or maybe your website. Successful teams have success, successful individuals. Yeah. It, I, I, I talk about there is an I in team. You know, that's the old thing. There's no I in team. Yes, there is. Remember, um, I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but Kobe Bryant said one time, there's no, there's no I in team, but there's an I in win. That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's a take on that. Um, because no team, a team is made up of a group of individuals. And if, if one or most of the individuals are not in good po- good place or healthy mentally, physically, emotionally, then the team can only be as, as good as their weakness, that weakness. So individuals need to be built on. So you need to develop employees. You need to develop your team members in your organization as individuals, as well as part of the team. And we were talking earlier about people who have a negative, you know, have a negative outlook on life if they're in the team they they can people say they're a poison to the team well only in that they're not being fully utilized and they can't free themselves of that negativity so you have to work on developing and i think that's missed in a lot of things including sports um and i think you know kobe bryant played for a coach who got that that he he let the individuals be the individuals um, both in Chicago and in LA, let them be who they were, encourage them to do that, but help them and, and learn and, and become the people they needed to be, but also brought them together, help them mold their egos into a place where they could win championships. And you know, Phil Jackson won a lot of them. <laughs> um, but, and I think that's really what it's about. That's why I think there is an I in team. People miss that. It, it sometimes it's painful because if you have someone who an or, uh, an individual who is failing as in their life, and and that is going to impact your team. So why not have them work them help them become successful, and your team will become more successful. I know a lot of people talk about Phil Jackson. Oh, he won all the championships because they're such great players, right? Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, sure. Shaq. But then you know, reverse it like. Michael Jordan didn't win a championship until Phil Jackson got there. Right. Shaq and Kobe didn't win a championship until Phil Jackson got there. Right. right. So, what's, yeah. you know, the player, the coach, you know, like. I think it's a combination. Yeah. And I think that's what happens for every organization. Is that If you're going to be a championship organization, you need to have everybody on board and everybody doing their best. And, and you know, in sports, there's only one champion every year. But in in business and in whatever work you're doing, everybody can be a champion and behave like one. And what's always interesting is you will get treated like one if you act like one. Yeah. And, um, and again, that goes back to the individual. If all the individuals are, are healthy and, and doing well and feel like and are, feel valued, 
then they start performing like champions and acting like it, and then all the team is being treated like that. So it's not like you spend a lot of time investing time with people, but how do you balance that with like only 24 hours in a day, right? Because right. I mean, you're married, I don't know, you have kids or grandkids, yep. you have yep. social life, you do horse race stuff. Like, how do you balance the time? Because you invest in someone, you just can't say hi once a day. Like, you got to invest some time, right? Yeah. So, how do you like balance that? Um, well, and I think you also have to take care of yourself. Oh, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. yeah. yeah there's <laughs> that. There is that. <laughs> On top of everything, all those other things. Yes. Uh, to me, it's about, um, it's about me. It starts with me. Me taking the time to be grateful, um, to to take care of myself mentally, physically, and emotionally, so that I can give energy to other people. I think that that is what, um, and there are a lot of people out there who who do that do that really well. And you can't give what you don't have, so you've got to make sure you have that. And I have pushed that limit multiple times. Because I am passionate about about helping people and caring about them and helping them succeed, I think there's you need to understand where your boundaries are with that, and be very clear with those with everyone else. You know, when there's when when I'm going to have time to myself, I'm going to have that, and I just I make sure I can do that. Thankfully, my family is really good at understanding that, but. Um, and, and so I think the boundaries, taking care of yourself, and then, and then knowing and teaching other people to do that. Right? So the people that I'm helping, if I teach them to have some time to themselves and take care of themselves, then they need me in small, smaller doses, or they need their leader or their support system, however that is, in smaller doses. So I think that that's a big part of it. So next, uh, to call to officer, is that something every company should have? Or should that be something that HR takes care of, or something the CEO should take care of themselves? I think I think it's a little bit of everybody. I, I think that's leaders should be doing those things. Um, um, I mean, it's nice to have someone who who's got that main response, those main responsibilities. But um, I think that's one of the things I talk about in an organization. Everyone's responsible for its success everyone on the team um, and, and of course that starts modeling it from the leadership and if you have someone doing that job then that does help but small organizations you know you can't have that yeah. <laughs> so. so can you define what how do you define a healthy work environment um how do i define a healthy work environment uh, i think number one is uh, you know people talk about morale <laughs> and they talk about how you know although a lot of people can't define it when i ask them <laughs> what does that really mean um, I, I think the a healthy organization has individuals who are are being are feel valued and are, are healthy it has a environment of teamwork that everyone knows what their role is not only knows what it is, fulfills it, and is is celebrated for, for that role, no matter what that role is. Um, you know, we were just using the the basketball as an example. Well, on the on the Lakers and the Bulls, there were 
players who were not great anymore or had were at the end of their career who played a specific role. Um, I remember um, on the Bulls, uh, I think it might have been their first championship, Bill Cartwright, big, big guy who had a great career. Yeah, he's paid for the Knicks yeah. and the Bulls later yeah. on. And so at the end of his career, he came in and he was a seven foot, took up space, played, played defense, rebounded, but didn't play all game. You know, came in spurts, could score, and everything. And he, you know, and he knew what his role was, and he played that role for twelve minutes a game, every game, and the best he could. And they celebrated him for it. And I think that's and that's why they could win championships. When he didn't fulfill his role, they couldn't succeed as much. They were going to say, hey, you need to be better. So I think the that's really what a um, successful team does. They also handle problems, and we all have problems, and we always will. They handle problems in a productive way, and they handle them fast. So if there's a conflict between two teammates, they don't need the supervisor or the leader to get involved. They don't um, right away. They don't need a teammate to get involved. They handle it. If they can't handle it, there's they have created an internal process where they can go to the next level. Hey, we we're not going to work this out. Let's go help. Go go to our teammate or let's go to the supervisor. And um, and healthy teams do that. They solve problems fast so they don't get in the way of what they're trying to do. And they understand their Healthy teams also understand their that their mission is important. Um, I I talk a lot about uh, having an organizational purpose and an individual's purpose aligned, and that's what happens in healthy organizations. It can and it does, and it's important that everyone makes sure if because you know there there's a lot of jobs that are easy to to understand as a doctor, right? I, I'm a surgeon. I if I do these people are going to have a better life or survive if I do the surgery. That's not as always as easy and clear in every, every business, but it's there that sense of, of purpose and that sense of what success is. And I think that's the other part. You need to know what success really is. <laughs> <laughs> what does it mean? What is it? And they also celebrate, they celebrate when they, when they, when they win the game. And they know what win winning means. Um, defining winning is always a key piece to that. Um, I think that's that's the gist of a okay. Successful. So you, you might I might not remember this. So one time, um, Michael Jordan scored sixty three points and they won the game. Right? There's a player on the Bulls named Stacy King. He's like all American, Oklahoma University. Mm -hmm. Did have a good pro career. After the game, a reporter asked Stacey King, like, can you tell us about the game? And he answered, I remember the game as a, as a night, me and Michael Jordan got 64 points to win the game. <laughs> now, at first, you might think, about what's this guy talking about, right? But I think his mind was like, you know, even though I scored two points, that was a, a factor in us winning the game, right? right. So I was disappointed as Michael Jordan is winning this game. Right. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. I think when, you're, when you know that as an, in an organization, no matter what you're doing, that you – you played your game. You you fulfilled your role to the best of your ability, and you did it well. And and it doesn't matter whether you're the the star or not. You you help the team win. 
I know we're answering. I think people were like, Jeff Report, like, are you kidding me, guy? Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> what, what? Yeah. But I, I think that's true. I mean, he, I, I've watched it in workplaces where, where there was a role that wasn't being filled and the team wasn't able to be successful. And, and sometimes it's a minor role. It's just a minor thing that isn't getting done that someone realizes. And then they, they see the role. They go, I can fill that. They fill it, and all of a sudden, there's a success in the team because of it. And um, and the stars, the superstars, are still <laughs> out there doing their magic, um, whoever that is. And but they realize, hey, I just scored my two points, and I fulfilled my role the best way I could, and we won because of it. Yeah. And I, I think that goes back to people understanding that you're probably winning more than you think you are. Yeah. If you look at it that way. So do you think employees, when they don't perform well, they don't perform well because it's just like they don't know how to perform well? Or they or it's because there's like outside things or is it the employee employer keep them from performing well? I think it could be all of the above, but I think it usually you usually start with um with the employee um themselves and you you want to look at, um, you know, the culture. What's the culture? Is the culture allowing them to succeed? Is there something getting in their way? Um, I, I said earlier about caring. Well, I'm going to ask. I, you know, you, you got to be careful nowadays about how personal you get, and they have to volunteer certain things, of course. But if they know I care, then they probably will. But if I see someone struggling, um, I'm going to ask them. So you're struggling. Tell me about, you know, and a lot of times you get this relief. Oh, someone noticed I'm struggling. <laughs> yeah, I have. So let, let's explore that. Let's talk about it. So you start there. Sometimes it ends up being I'm, as I'm struggling because I'm not a good fit. I hate this work. Um, I'm not good at it. I don't want to do it. Um, sometimes it's as simple as my my computer's not working right, but I can't get anybody to fix it, so I just keep on going. Sometimes it's as simple as that. Um, I think the key is to be curious about what it is and not just blame the employee. Oh, this is you're being awful and we need to get, get you out of here. But to, why is this person struggling? Because there, there's always a reason. No, one thing that kills me a lot of times, like, you know, you have a manager and they say, hey, you know, Jason's not doing well. You know, he keeps on messing up. Like, well, have you told Jason he's messing up? He knows he's messing up. Are you sure? You just said Jason messed up 10 times in a row. So you're saying Jason's perfectly messed up time 10, 10 times in a row? Yeah. Can you just go ask? You know, like, yeah. but a lot of men are like, oh, he's messing up on purpose. Yeah. I think that's, I think assuming that, that someone's. Like, has Jason been trained up? Has been told to do yeah, it correctly? Usually or? not. No. Um, but even if you have. Again, sometimes it's aptitude. Everyone has a different, you know, is Jason a new employee? Is Jason not? Has he been here for 10 years? Is Because m- almost there is an occasion when it's done on purpose. Yeah. And usually that is a cry for attention, and that's a different story. But when people, you know, I believe everyone wants to do their best. They want to be successful. So you have to be curious as to why are you not being successful? Now, sometimes they don't know. Sometimes they're very um, 
just don't see it. They think they're re- doing really well because no one's told them. Yeah. And so if you build it up and you let it build up 10 times, and some a manager has to tell a supervisor to do that, and the supervisor goes, and now they're mad, and now they express it in a negative way, that can actually be detrimental to the whole situation. I think that's understanding, you know, understanding your person that you're dealing with. Because if someone thinks going along and they think they're doing good, and then all of a sudden, they yeah. that's like they've been doing like we'll say a year, and then they, they yell at for doing a job bad. Like I've been doing this for a year. That's right. No one said anything. You know, <laughs> As a matter of fact, I, I worked. I've doing this for a year. I've got a promotion and a raise right. the last year. Right now, you telling me I'm doing it wrong in front of everyone? Like what type of mess is this? Yeah, and I think that happens, and and I think that's because. Leaders aren't always taught how to have that conversation. They think it's going to be painful, and usually it isn't, especially if you do it at the beginning. Right? If, if you see there's a problem, go fix it right away. Like I said, healthy teams do that. Healthy leaders do that. Let's go fix that so it doesn't build up and people get mad about it or, or things don't work or something big failure happens um, in the company. So, yeah, I think the leaders... As a leader, you need to have that conversation. Fast. I remember reading somewhere, but I think it said like the most untrained person in any company is a first-time supervisor. Yeah, no one teaches you how to supervise. They they don't, and sixty um, percent of supervisors who are hired this year will fail, um, and most of it's because of lack of training yeah. and lack of direction. And a lot of times, people are promoted because they're really good at technically. Was that what's it called? The Peter Principle? I yes, think? yes. <laughs> and and so you're you're promoted because you're really good at it, but that doesn't mean you're really good at supervising. Yeah. And if you if you get promoted, you get you probably had like ten peers you used to hang out with. Now you're the boss. That's another dynamic you yeah. got to deal with. And and people don't always think about that. You, know, you think about the money and the prestige first, not the real nuts and bolts of how this is really going to work. And that's very difficult to be promoted within your work. And you may have competed against people who. Yeah, you're right. I didn't think about that. Yeah. yeah. And now they're they didn't, jealous or hateful or, or, yeah. hate or, or, or just or just disappointed. Yeah. But if you handle that wrong, now they are going to be jaded. Yeah. And and so it's and then you're a first time supervisor that no one taught about that dynamic. Yeah. If too many companies say figure you figure it out. Right. Yeah. And and I, I always find that interesting because as a first time supervisor on the front line. Being a frontline supervisor, you're impacting the company's bottom line more than any yeah. leader in the organization. Yeah. And then you're going to just say, eh, just figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 you should have classes. You should teach them how to do it. You should teach them the dynamics of what it is to care about people and how to have tough conversations and, and, and how to pay attention because you're not a technical person anymore. So stop doing the technical work and start doing the leadership work which is paying attention to your people knowing what their triggers are knowing knowing who they are understanding who might have substance abuse problems who's having challenges in their private life you don't have to know all the details but you do need to know that it's going on um, so you can help them and and then you know these multi-billion dollar companies (laughs) you throw that right in uh, wow how do you make money (laughs) yeah can you talk some about some of the Webinars, online courses you do? Yeah, I do. I I do a number of them, but um, um, I prefer to do them in person. Um, 
because when you're teaching leaders, you want to get them to feel and teach them to interact and, and deal with those difficult things. But I do a, I do a leadership. Oh, first I do a change management one um, that I can do both in person. And, and we, that's kind of, if you're dealing with a change issue that you're struggling with, you know, I have a process to help work you through that as a unit, as a team. Um, sometimes it's a leadership team. Sometimes it's a, a frontline team. I have a, a, a course for leaders that is a, a 90 day course where we meet three times and the rest is done uh, via video. And um, it's, it's for the, it's for those frontline first time supervisors or newer <coughs> managers who, who are just starting to learn what's going on and, and it, to help them uh, go through the process. And the first session is always about them, right? Teach, learn about yourself first. Um, I also do uh, a chartering uh, workshop, which is uh, values and purpose and mission and vision for, for a team. And uh, that's always done in person, um, but that's always underestimated in how, how powerful that can be. Um, let's see, what else are we doing? Um, we're working on a number of First-time employee trainings. We're working with a partner. We haven't. We're not ready for those yet, but they'll be generally online. Where you know we've noticed that the new employees, you're not, you know, you're coming out of college, you're coming out of high school, you really aren't taught how to work and be in a workspace. So we want them to be successful. So we we're creating a program to teach them how do you how do you navigate um, finance? How do you make sure your pay is right? How do you navigate benefits in HR and, and how do you communicate with your supervisor? Those sort of basics that, um, you know, we were taught differently and, and you kind of learned. I mean, my first wasn't really a formal job, but I worked for a farmer, you know, throwing hay and you learned exactly. That's you know, right. We throw hay, right? That's right. And he taught you and you better do it that way. But, and and I think that, um, but we we got to learn the dynamics of a workplace and working with people where it doesn't happen today for a lot of reasons. And I don't think that's that's not the young generation's fault. That's that's ours, and we need to teach them. Yeah, you know that kills me too. Like, you know, people we always complain about you know the participation trophy generation, right? Right. But who gave them the who gave them the trophies? <laughs> Like we did, right? That's right. But we complained they, you know, but we did. That's how we raised them, and we're complaining about it. Yeah, and I and I think that that's true. And we, I noticed that trend about eight or ten years ago. You know, the the you know they talked about the millennials, and the 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 two the millennials and the Gen Z are going to change are changing the way we do business now because of who they are, and that's a good thing, not a negative thing. But um. But there were those basic things they didn't know. And when they came in, they were getting beat up because they didn't know them. It's not their fault. And so that's what I've told all the organizations I've gone in since is stop complaining about it. Start fixing it and, and teaching them, knowing that when you bring a new employee in you're, that is um, of a certain age that hasn't worked a lot, you're going to have to teach them the basics. John Wooden was a great one at UCLA where he would – freshman he 
he started freshmen by teaching them how to put their uniform on. I remember that, how to tie your shoes. Yeah. I remember. Yeah. I remember and so, that. and he was pretty successful at that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so why, why as a, a successful organization, why wouldn't you do that? Why wouldn't you teach them how to come in and, hey, this is how we get ready for work every day. This is what we do. This is when we take our breaks. This is where we do that. Um, but we don't do that. We assume they know everything yeah. and that they know what we know. And then we throw them to the wolves and say, give them a week's training. The great thing is technology, they don't have a problem with. They'll pick that up in 10 seconds. But that doesn't mean they're going to pick up the social vibe of the culture. They're just not. How, how do you recommend companies do this? Like, Most of company has like all generations. Okay, so Boomer, Generation X, Millennial, Gen Z, Gen whatever coming next. How do you recommend they utilize them to the best abilities to make the workplace the best place you can be? First thing I think you want to do is help them understand generationally what the differences are. So um, as part of almost all of those classes I named and many others, we do have some exercise about generations um, because they all are different. Um, there's a couple of good books out there about it. Some of them are dated because they don't have Gen Z in them. But, um, but I think it's important to understand what the differences are and, and also the similarities tend to forget that there are a lot of similarities. Gen Z has some similarities to to the boomers a little bit. There's a few things they're doing that are very similar to them. So it it's um, I think it's understanding that. I, I had an example of a, a number of years ago um, we had a, a, a boomer and I had a it was a very beginning of the millennial, but he was one of the first millennial. And and the millennial asked, he said, "Can I, can I work a different shift? Do I have to work the same? I'd I'd rather, I'd rather come in late and, uh, and, and work late. That works better for me." Okay, so the boomer comes to me and complains. What are you letting him do that for? You can't do that. And I said, you know, you can do that too. And he said, <laughs> oh, I can. He goes, well, I don't want to come in late. I want to come in earlier. Makes my commute better. Do it. Yeah. And so I think that's the always the misunderstanding. Well, they want to do it. They ask. That means I can't. No, it yeah. doesn't. Yeah. You just have, and you may do it differently because, again, as a boomer, he was he was taught. I get up very early. I I get into my day very early. I go to bed early. That's what he did. So I had one coming in at nine. Who, who we were coming in at seven. He liked nine. I had one coming in at five thirty. Didn't affect the team. They both knew that if there was a meeting that they needed to come in early or stay late for, yeah. they had to. They did that, and it worked great. I think millennials do a good job, like asking, right? Like, can I do this? Can I do that? You know? Yeah, they do. I think they sometimes they tell. <laughs> yeah. But I, but I think they're they're very good at expressing what they need. And that's an important thing, especially for a a leader who wants to make sure everything is going to be productive. You may not get it exactly the way you want it, but if I understand what you need, I can, I can come up with a solution that works for everybody. So who is your perfect customer? My perfect customer. Um, it's going to sound weird, but a, a organization who is ready to change, 
who's desperate for change that is is very toxic and and struggling to survive that's my perfect cup and how do you find them or do they find you a little of both um you know we've got we've got ourselves out there and all the um, you know linkedin and and of course we have a website at chromoff.com which anybody can jump on um we do post a lot on linkedin um you know just on general subjects of the things we've been talking about today um but i i find them by word of mouth most of the time or they've gotten so desperate and someone says hey you you ought to I, I saw this website or saw this person on LinkedIn or we've worked with them before. Um, you might want to talk to them. That's where we get most of them right now. And your customers tend to be from a certain industry, certain revenue stream or any certain similarities to new customers? Not, not revenue stream for sure. I've, I've had some that are damn near broke and some that, that are very, very lucrative businesses. Um, I come from local government. Um, I worked in, local government around King County the last um, until I became a consultant for about 20 years and in local government for 25. So um, that's where we started. Um, and we branched out into private. Uh, I have one other consultant now who does this work with me and his expertise is in um, food and beverage. So we've done some work there. But the program we do resonates in any business, and we've, we're working with some private businesses right now. So talk about this. I saw this meme a while ago, right, where this guy was talking to a bunch of employees. Right? He said, this company needs change. We need it now. They once said, yes. Change is coming. Yes. Yeah. You all need a change. No. <laughs> right. <laughs> so can you talk about the dynamic of, like, people knowing the origin needs to change, but they themselves don't think they need a change? Yeah, I think that's that's usually the case with change and accountability right is is it's all really great until you point it at me <laughs> um it's interesting though that um it, if it's not most of the time organizations have a a group of things they need to change so we look at when i go into an organization i look at five main factors six of them really but so i look at their culture and there's things that need to change there, and that's we look at there first. I look at the structure. Um, usually, the structure is not is feeding a bad culture. Systems, processes, external forces, things that are pressuring your business from the outside, and then what you measure, how you measure success. So KPIs or analytics or however you decide to do that. Um, the um, when you um, when I look at those things, there's always areas that need to change. So if you take, initially, if you take the person, the personal piece of it out, right? the organization needs to change their software system because I can't do my job. They know that. So that makes it, so when you identify some things to change, um, you identify those. You also identify some small ones. One of the things I've done in a lot of organizations that I've started with is their cell phones don't work right. So the first thing we do is show them a change process by changing their cell phones. 
So we model the entire process that we're going to use and whatever change we're going to do. They get to see what it looks like. They get to see that they're going to be involved in choosing the new cell phones and talk about what's going to happen. That, so we model it. We also know that every person goes through change differently and at a different time. I, I, I relate it to the mourning process you know, it, because it is a sense of loss. You're losing the old way and you're gaining a new way. And so some people will, will everyone will be resistant at the beginning, be some sort of resistance. Some people, it's that quick, and then they're not resisting anymore. Some people will resist till the very end. Helping identify those people and working through that process is important. The key to that whole thing is that you want to get everybody to celebrate the change at the end. And, and what they say when that happens is, I'm glad we did this. This was a good change for us. It takes a while to get everybody there. And, and I have had people in a change process be almost there and go right back to resistance. <laughs> and and rather than fight that, we don't want it when we change, we don't want to fight that. We want to find out why they're resistant. What's caused you all of a sudden when you were an implementer and you were loving everything that was happening, all of a sudden now we're almost done and you don't want to do it. You know, tell us about it. And that's I think that's the mistake that's made in a lot of change processes is that we go, well, one person doesn't matter in this change process necessarily, and we're going to do it, and they can't stop it, so let's just roll on through. That little pill of someone being treated that way grows back again, and then that will, will poison the well, and you won't, your change won't function as well as you want it to. So when you get everybody to that celebration point, then you know the change is successful. Any implementation of that has to go entirely through the organization, in my opinion. You cannot change, make a management change and change the way you're doing things and tell them what they're going to do and not have them part, part of the process. And then the frontline employees, I mean, that, that's what I ask. I'll go in, well, we did a change process two years ago and we think it was very successful. Okay, can I ask, can I ask the receptionist and the, jan and the janitor? <laughs> Well, what will they tell me? And if, if will they will they be able to say the same thing that your manager does? If they tell me yes and I go test it, then that was a success. They say, well, wait, wait, I, I, we can't, you can't. Then it wasn't a success because the change didn't get implemented on the front line, which didn't, in the end, doesn't impact your customer. How you deal with this? Like, uh, come to hire on to do change management process for them. And the CEO, the leadership, they, they, they say they're for change, they say all the right things, but you can tell from the body language that the employee is going to know from the body language that they're not really all in the change, just doing a check the block, so to speak. Yeah. How do you work through that? Um, well, one of the things we've done is we have a, a pretty good process to help them understand. So we do the assessment, and then the assessment tells us whether they're committed or not. Um, I have told clients no you're not committed and you're not ready for the change. And when you are, call us. Or, or if you want to do it yourself, go ahead. But and that's fine with us. It's your company. But understand, if you're not committed, the employees will know. Oh, yeah, they'll know. With like seconds. Yeah. <laughs> and when they know that, nothing's going to happen. Yeah. And so, and, and in a lot of companies, the, they're the ones who want. The front employee, line employees know what needs to change. 
when they see the assessment or they hear about it, they know that it that what we do is and what we're recommending is a good thing. They want to do it, and their biggest fear is that the the, the leadership won't do it, either, and the leadership will just keep doing what they're doing. So, we will tell them no if they're not ready and and test their commitment. But if we're in it, right? If now we're in it and now they're showing resistance, and they will, yeah, resistance happens at every level. Um, we're going to work that work our way through it, and we're going to continue to spell out the positives of changing and the negatives of not. And certainly the negative of, of um, the, the catastrophe, and that's what we tell them at the beginning. Once we start down this process, you cannot stop. You can fire us. You can send us packing, but you ain't stopping it because the, the people are going to be empowered and they're going to know, hey, this is what needs to happen, and they're either going to make it happen, or they're going to, or they're going to rebel. And that rebellion comes up in two things: either they leave, or they say, "No, we're doing it this way." And it's not that we want that intentionally. That's not our goal. Our goal is to make sure that everyone's successful. But we want to make sure the leaders know when we come in, that's what can happen. And they start to see that. They start to see the energy. And then we talk about how their jobs are going to be easier. It's not just about the frontline employees being successful. It's about the leaders. Do you realize that if, you know, rather than working 65 hours a week, you can work 45? And probably double your output. Yeah, and double your output, and your people are going to produce more. Um, and you're going to be much happier, so is your family. The rest of your life is going to be better, and your stress level is going to go down. And then we prove it. And and that's really what it is, is we prove what we say. And then they, once you get them going and they realize that, they'll resist again. Then we remind them, hey, remember what happened here? This is going to happen here. And then they, they move on. So it's a very dynamic and individual process. And we pay attention to all of these individuals. How about the situation? Like both, for lack of a better term, there's a mom and pop coming out there, right? But they've gone to be a, like a multi-million dollar even billion dollar company. They still run things like the mama prop, right? Traditional things, still the old school ways. And they're like, you know what? We got to modernize, right? So they want to modernize, but they keep on going back to old school ways. That's what they know, right? Right. Like they're like 50 old way, 50 new. To me, that could do either one or the other, right? How do you like walk through them? With, okay. Make, you made the decision to be like modernized, right? This is how you're going to modernize. You got to keep going back to old traditional ways. But they'll be like... Well, we go back to ultra traditional because that's what got us to this point, right? right? So how do you like work through that? Well, I think that's part of the thing is that you, what got you, that's the hardest part about all of it is what got you here is not necessarily going to get you to the next level. And so you have to make, we work them through making the conscious decision. So now, like you said, they've made the decision to modernize and to move forward and scale up and do all those things. We, we prepare them for the process of letting go. You're going to have to let go of the old ways. And, and you're going to have to go through that mourning resistance process that we were talking about. And so preparing them in advance is very important, but also identifying when the resistance comes up, not waiting to talk to them. You know, hey, it's Friday and it's 4 o'clock and the resistance pops up. Let's talk about it on Monday. No, you take the time to talk about it right now. It's kind of that go slow to go fast thing. You jump in, you you take care of it, 
and then on Monday they have they you you got them back ready and back where they need to be. Um, like I said, it's very especially for a a mom and pop a, a owner a founder business of which I am one. Um, it's very personal, and you have to learn to let go. And I found this right. I'm already having that challenge where um, my example is our. I created an, a file system that works beautifully for me. <laughs> or you. <laughs> yeah. And and it makes sense to the people I explain it to, but they don't do it the same way I do it. And so sometimes that's frustrating to me because I can't find things like I'm used to because it was just me before. But in order to scale, in order for me to, our company to grow, I got to let go of them. I got to, we've got to find a new way to make sure that I get what I need while the rest of the employees are getting what they need. And I think, and that's true of the business. So how does the business get what it needs to feed it um, while it's growing and all of us kind of grow with it? And I think that's the big key is that with the mom and pop, they're going to go back to that because they're comfortable with it. Well, let's find a way to make them comfortable with the new way. What is a way they can connect with that new way that, um, because it doesn't have to be done a certain way. It just needs to, you know, the old way is not going to work. It needs a new way. For your pricing, how do you come up with your price with this matter of trial and error? You got the market decide. Like, can you talk about how you came up with your pricing, the process for that? Yeah, I, I have a, I base a lot of it on, on the hours it's going to take to do it. So there's two different ways I do, do the business. One, I'm a consultant, and that's kind of an hourly type thing. The other is I'm an embedded leader. So you, bring me in to take over a part of your business or your business and I fix it. And then I help you hire a new person. So I have two different pricing models for those. The pricing model on the, on the interim is I, I charge weekly based on what roughly the salary of the position, the whole package plus a little bit. Um, but I have three factors there. How much work is it? You know, am I going to work 45 hours a week or am I going to work 70? And I'm willing to do both, but, you know, the pay is going to be related. What's the stress level? Um, because when I come in and you're taking on a toxic work environment, stress level is high. And if it's super high, I'm going to charge you more for that because that has a personal impact on me. So I need to get um, reimbursed for that. Um, and then the length of time. Right? So those are the three factors with, with Embedded. When I'm a consultant, I look at the hours it's going to take. So I know what it takes us to do an assessment based on the number of employees and how big an organization you are generally. So we, we put the assessment together, and then we, we put another scope of work together for the second phase, which is implementation. We will help you with implementation any way you want us to, um, but we will price it accordingly based on our hourly. Need. So if I'm gonna if I'm gonna be the one that goes into the organization and does this, then I have a pricing, and then I have a couple of other. Like I said I have another consultant. So if we're all gonna go in, then it's it's a little bit different pricing. One of the things we found is I let the market decide for a while, and I let the you know I wanted at the beginning I we were proving our concepts and all that. I wanted to be fair, and what I realized is people if I didn't charge them enough. They wouldn't continue or be committed to the process. So we want to make sure that there is a pain point of some sort, right? That it means something to their company that, that they've got us in there. 
um, we're going to over deliver and we do that and we work hard to do that but we we know that if if it doesn't mean anything to them you know it's the whole free thing right if you get yeah. it free you, you don't value yeah. it and i think that we found that to be very true what's the akromov method the akromov method well i think it's it's um it's the uh i i mentioned the what what we call the six pillars of a healthy organization which is culture structure process systems external forces and the analytics those are the pillars that's the base of a healthy organization and then we go through um and then um so you have to identify what's going on with all those and make all of those right so as an example the um the culture i talked about a a workshop of uh, chartering mission vision values all those things um and and healing i think that's the other part people forget is toxic organizations are need to heal um so we get the culture right we get the structure right um on the structure a lot of times structure in an organization you were talking about the mom and pop earlier they build from a you know making twenty thousand a month to two million a month in revenue they have all this staff and they just fill in spots that they need and it's done very organically so looking at a structure and making it um, making it fit what the organization actually needs is is actually impacts the operation quite considerably so um so we make recommendations to fix that almost always um, the organization has one or two problems it's either way too flat so as one leader and not enough um, interaction, which is the mom and pop does that usually, or it has too many, um, too many layers, and the, the the leader of the organization can't interact or understand what's going on at the frontline level. So we create a structure that fixes those things. Uh, the I think systems people people always think that your systems work well. But I have found so funny that people have workarounds. I'll bet in your setting up here, you have a few workarounds to get through things. <clears throat> and so when you when you have someone like us look at that, um, and you go, "Why do you do it that way?" And they're like, "Because I have to. It's what it's, what, it's the way it works." But if you upgrade something or you do some changes, you can make yourself more efficient. Um, processes. That's the way you do your work, and um, steps you take to do your work and a lot of times those aren't documented especially in an organization that's growing when you're training new people they don't get trained the same everybody does it different and your customer experience is impacted and then external forces which is always an interesting one to me is is that there are things that impact your business that you can't control one of them right now for a lot of people is inflation so having a strategy to deal with that that you can implement when it happens, not and 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 identify it while it's happening, because a lot of times you get you know, uh, fuel prices are a great great example. If you're a trucking company, fuel prices crush you, and if you're not ready to make an adjustment to your customers and your billing somehow for that, then you're going to lose money 
over a period of time. You're going to go from profitability to losing money maybe in a month. And, and so you need to have a strategy to deal with that. So, And again, it has nothing to do with, you can't control that, as that fuel price. You just have to deal with it, but you have to have a strategy to do that. And then um, analytics, people count everything. <laughs> and usually there's only three or four things that really matter to, to, to really tell you whether you're being successful or not. So we help you identify those and then set up a program for you to measure those on a regular basis. I mean, it's one of my favorite sports is baseball and they count every little thing. And um, some of those things matter. Some of them don't. And I think that's the, um, that's the reality of a business. If you spend it, and so many people spend more time counting than they do doing. And so we try to fix that. So putting all those things together, humanizing the workplace with all of those factors is really the Akram Ahmed. And your background is in public sector government work. Uh-huh. So what influenced you to leave that career to become an entrepreneur? Um, the biggest one was that I wanted to impact more people faster. I like my work. Um, I enjoyed um, serving people, but I had a 25-year career, and, and it was time to do something different, but I really wanted, I realized I could, I could, I could change a team and, a, and an organization's dynamic really quickly, but, and that's what I loved, and I didn't, um, I use the analogy, I, I can install the grass in the lawn, but I hate to mow it. <laughs> and that's what I came to, is I would make the change, and then I'd start mowing the lawn for two years, and I I got bored, and I didn't like it. So I've created a. I knew as an entrepreneur I could create that environment. I could see that in just in the workplaces I was in that the work was needed. And then, um, so then I I I started working with another company, um, doing the work. I got invited. A, a, a client actually invited me. In and they said, hey, your name keeps coming up. Can you help us do this? Yes. So I went and talked to a, uh, another consultant firm, a small one, and, and the owner, uh, Linda, said, we'll talk for 10 minutes. I just want to find out how do I do it? How do I set up my business and everything? And she said, why don't you join us um, for a while? So I did, and she taught me a lot about how to do this, and I realized I like doing it. I can do it. And and then I set up a plan to a business plan and started a business on my own. Once I did that, I, I mean that's a lot of work. I, I don't ever want to underestimate anyone who's an entrepreneur who, who or wants to be. It's a lot of work. There are a lot of details to go through. Um, but once I got into it, and the, I mean they talk about the freedom, and that's true and not true. Yeah, that's, that's more of a myth. <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the, yes, I can get up at nine o'clock on any given day. Um, but also I have to work 16 hour days, some days, um, many in a row. And, uh, and so that's what got me into it. And then once I started and we were talking before we started about, you know, trying to get partners to help you do the things you don't like to do or you're not good at. And I've been lucky. Um, in many ways, I've had a number of really good partners who do things. I've 
a, a great team support team. And so I don't know. I will always have some entrepreneurial business going from now on, whether I went to work somewhere else or no matter what I do. Um, I love the, the experience and, and you're always looking for another opportunity, <laughs> right? How do I make it grow? What do I do? And so it's, it's always dynamic. Can you talk about some of the mistakes you've made? Sure. Um, first one I've talked about a couple of times is, um, as an entrepreneur, I think we're risk takers naturally. Um, and I am, and I took a couple of risks that I would say weren't calculated. <laughs> I, I got a little ahead of myself as a team. We got a little ahead of ourselves. Um, and the example is that we had a workshop, but one of the workshops I was talking about, and we actually scheduled it without having anybody to come. We kind of build it and they will come thing and it, they didn't come. <laughs> and so we had made an investment and I realized Hey, you got to let the market tell you whether you're, whether they're ready for it or not. And then you make the commitment and I did it too early. So that was a, that was costly, cost us a little bit of money, cost us more, a little bit of the ego being bruised, but, um, but it was a good lesson about, um, there's time to take a risk and a time not to, and to make sure your product is valued in the market before you jump into it. And, and that was a really good lesson. Um, uh, we were talking earlier about, uh, social media and marketing are two areas that have been really challenging for us to find good partners. We found a really good partner to start off in social media and, and um, social media businesses generally, especially small shops only last about three years. And that's what she did very good. And I, we, we had a really good partnership, but she needed to do something different. And, and so since then, trying to find the right one, I've taken some risks where I spent a little money and maybe shouldn't have and that sort of thing. Um, and then social media in general. I'm not sure for our business that at the level we've been doing it, it's the right thing. We're reconsidering. And I think that's the other part is to constantly, at the beginning, I didn't reevaluate anything. I got a bank. I got all this stuff, and I didn't evaluate the fees. I didn't do any of that. So I'm losing money on some things that I didn't need. And so at, after I had um, expanded my company, it wasn't just me. I had some resources to be able to look at things. I think that's the other mistake. I didn't evaluate the business on a on a month-to-month basis. I just let it roll when I was busy. And I think that's important to do. You have to know, hey, is this bank doing me right? Is this partner am i getting the value that i'm paying them to to do the work for social media marketing whatever um and then the other part i think is that i underestimate sometimes my skills as an entrepreneur in that i love doing my business part not just running my business i like doing the work so sometimes i underestimate it and the way that showed up is that is in marketing. I had a bunch of people trying to get me, you know, get me to buy their marketing stuff. And so I kept asking, well, what I need is a plan. And then I can decide what I want to do. And no one would deliver me a plan. So what I realized, I said, okay, well, I 
can't find anybody to do do it. They're telling me no, so I'll do it myself. So I did a bunch of research. I, I dug in just like you do when you start a business, and, and I realized, okay, this is what I need. That's actually what brought me here today. One of the things I identified is that um, this is a better venue for me than, um, you know, having a conversation with somebody is, is where I can be successful. So we identified podcasting as one of the things we should be doing as, as a marketing tool. And really, because we're more than just a business, we want this to be a movement. If you can change your workplace without, do it. If you can use my stuff to change your workplace, please do it. Whatever you want, however you want to do that. Because I, we can't get to them all and everybody deserves a great workplace. But when I'm doing the marketing, I realized, realized that. Let's just figure it out ourselves. So we put together a strategy and we're implementing it now. And um, we seem to be moving in the right direction. Are all your customers in Seattle? Uh, no. Um, I've had them all around King County, of course. Uh, I've, I've had a client in Bellingham, had one over in Lake Cushman. We've done um, other side of the mountains. We've applied for and, and, been part of processes in, in Portland. Um, we will go anywhere. I'll go anywhere. How do you determine time to part ways with customers? Like, is that, you know, just based on time, they, they met the change management has been successful. Like how, how do y'all determine like this time to part ways? The, the, um, um, the assessment process creates a roadmap to what we're going to do. It also creates a roadmap of what they're going to do after we leave. But, we are very specific about what we're going to do. There are things that we know they can't do because they're busy and they've got jobs to do. So we get those things done. Um, we do the facilitate the workshops and those sort of things. And then um, we get the change momentum rolling. And then there's, there's always a predetermined place where we start to exit. The way that I describe it is we come in and we grab onto your business and it, depending on how, if you let us do it, we'll grab on as hard as we possibly can, figure it out, get it going in the right direction, and then we'll let loose as fast as we can. And then if I'm embedded or any of us are embedded, then we we create a work plan for the, our replacement of six months so that they can come in, settle in, fall into the change play, uh, change process, and then have time to decide what their direction is so they can to go eventually so how about this suppose someone brings you on to do change management you're doing change management and then they say hey we also want you to do leadership coaching is that just a upgrade that you charge extra yeah. for or is yeah that, okay. yeah uh, a lot of times it's part of the original scope because we identify it but yeah we've had that happen where we where we'll we'll have an add-on um, depending on hours and what they want us to do i mean we've had add-ons for a, a a workshop uh had add-ons for more different work, um, you know, coaching for sure. We've had a, a, a major issue that showed up, a customer issue where we needed to do a, a process adjustment and they wanted us to concentrate on that. So, yeah. So what if a client says, can you do this for me? It'll only take a, take a, few, a few minutes. It'll only, <laughs> only, only take a day. Like how do you, how do you like, you know, because of course any amount of time is money. 
So how do you deal with that? Yeah, I, I think the 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 key thing is is that there's there's things that are within the scope and things that aren't. So our our scope of works are written very specifically. Um, so it's very easy to be clear about what's not in there, and when it's not, that's the advantage of actually having us embedded. Is that if we're part of your team, um, most of that gets that'll get done as part of the price, so you don't have to add more. If we're a consultant and we got to add hours, then we're going to look at it and we'll evaluate it. Um, we're very good at boundaries, so if if we say, well, okay, that is a that is a request that you say we'll take this. This is what we see. Um, we would we will charge you accordingly. Or at times I've said, well, keep track of the hours, and then um, we'll talk about it later. Depends on the client and what our relationship is, but most of them are pretty good, so we can usually do it that way. Where um, because I'm also well aware of what their budgets are as part of the assessment. And do you do any uh, government work? Government work, yeah, okay. do a lot of it. Does that um, mean like like county government, city government? Yes, yeah. okay. C- cities are. I've spent most of my time in cities. Um, I would say sixty percent of our clients are cities. Okay. You said you, yes. You and one more person on your team. Yeah. Well, I have two actually. I have uh, one who does what I do. Uh, Josh, who's actually my son too. Okay. Um, and uh, he does. He's the one who does. Uh, he does. Uh, he calls it legacy, um, coaching, which and consulting, which it is. He, he likes to take on the small founder businesses and help them scale. Very good at it. And he, um, he does, he uses the methods that I do and in the um, food and beverage business. And then we have one other, um, Chris Lynch, who is a financial, particularly in government, but he's a financial guru. He's, he's fabulous. And so, um, he helps, he does grants, he focuses in public works, um, funding mechanisms and that sort of thing, and he has some really nice programs. And he also goes in as a, in an interim kind of an interim fashion when there's uh, when there's a lot of finance things that are happening. Because I'll tell you right now, finance people are hard to find, <laughs> and he's 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 fantastic. So he's been with us about a year now. So. What's something like when you start as an entrepreneur, like you really struggled with, right? Like you got a time, you hard time figuring it out, but now you're like, why do I have such a hard time? That's the, that's the easiest thing ever. I must be like, what? Why? why? To, to me, it was the whole the whole startup process. I I I couldn't believe. Like you look, I looked at it. Okay, I got all these things, and I I created a business plan, and then I created a checklist, then I created another checklist, and I I just looked at it. And I, I started the. I didn't start the business. I, I, I actually had planned to start at a certain date, change the date, and um, I did that because I didn't. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know. And then um, I talked to somebody about it, and they said, because I thought one of the reasons. Funny, this is kind of funny. I, I thought, boy, these government processes are killing me, <laughs> and I've done them my whole life. Um, and, and and I look at them because there's a lot of them. You know, you got business licensing, you got payroll, you got all those things. Yeah. And I set it all up so I could expand into payroll whenever I was ready. Um, so I did all that work on advance, which was 
turns out to be a really good thing. But I, I thought, this is so, why is this, how is this so hard? How does anybody start a business? And then you look back, um, because we've talked about starting another business or part, and partnering with someone else and starting a new one, and we're like, well, you just do this, this, and this, it's done. It's not yeah. that. <laughs> so it is not, it is intimidating because it is a lot of work. But if you just do a little bit every day, it's okay. And then once you do it once, it's it, muscle memory. Yeah, it is, and it's so. And to me, I look back and go, "Well, why didn't I start it years ago?" <laughs> <laughs> so, from your point of view, why do why what's the reason businesses fail nowadays? Um, I would say we were talking about it earlier. One is uh, you get stuck in your ways of doing. Things. I want to do it this way, and this is the only way, and that's not true. And um, and again, we've I've struggled at times with that. I also think that people want to do too much themselves. You you, um, I believe if you do seventy percent of your work day is doing what you love, you're going to be a happy camper. So if I start to go below that, I'm gonna I I commit to ask for help. And, and that help can look very different and can change over time. But, um, you know, I have an executive assistant. We tried as, an, we did an admin first, and that first one didn't work out for a lot of reasons. So then we went to executive assistant. It's working great. Similar job description, but there's some differences. And then what I realized is I was still doing too much. I was still, why am I doing that? And so I, I, I have, as the owner, as leader of the business, you got to learn to let go. You're constantly letting go. Why should someone not be an entrepreneur? Um, that's hard for me to say because I love doing being one. I, I would say, um, if you like stability, <laughs> <laughs> if that's an important factor for you, <laughs> then don't do it. Um. I would also say that, uh, you know, I think you do need to take some risks. So if you're risk averse, uh, it's not going to, it's going to be very painful for you at times. Um, and I think, you know, like we said, I, I wonder why I didn't do it years ago, but I wasn't ready to do it. I think you want to make sure you're ready to make the commitment because there's no backup. Yeah. You know, especially when you start, there's no one else. So if, you need to do payroll and you've not you've worked payrolls done due tomorrow and you got to get it in the morning and you you just got home from a client two clients over the day and it's nine nine p.m and you're tired and yeah. you're hungry you eat and then you stay up until you get payroll done and there is no backup now as you grow that can change but when you start there isn't so you need to understand that that's what it is and that you don't get to do you don't get to do your what you love you know the reason you started the business you don't get to do your why every day or every minute um, because the business is a living breathing thing that needs your attention so you, you started a company were you still working with the government or you did a clean break um i actually did a clean break I worked for that other company. Um, I, I ended my government. I was working as a consultant with this other company, so it was much easier. And then I started, a, I picked a date, and I ended a contract 
that I had with them. So I had one client to finish up. I finished that up in, in September, uh, actually in beginning of October, and then started my business in November. So it was a clean break. And have you taken any loans or anything? It's all been bootstrapped. We bootstrapped it for the first three years. And then I took out a short, I took out a small business association loan um, recently um, that helped us do some, some upgrades to kind of get through our, our uh, risk taking that didn't work out and, um, and give us some cash flow. So, so you got loans with, with the SBA? Yeah. SBA. Can you talk about that some? Cause everyone I know always says this is process too hard. They loan money to no one. Can you talk about how you were successful in obtaining an SBA loan? Yeah, that's I, I didn't find it that way, but we got a partner. We found a partner bank who, uh, or a partner that, um, did the process for us. Okay. And I recommend that. Um, and they were great. We what they did is we found I think we found them on LinkedIn, okay. and we talked to them and we did a, a kind of an intake. And you had the loan; you already had like revenue coming in, right? Yeah, we had okay. revenue. Okay. Yeah, this was in year. This was this year. Okay. We just got it this year, so and we're almost a year four. So that helps. Yeah, I think is that you have some revenue. Yeah, that's most have, people are talking about it. They had like either low or little revenue. Yeah. So so when we took a, a small loan from QuickBooks, actually. Um, that we paid off really fast. Terms weren't awesome, but um, it was a little bit of money to get us through um, and have that cash flow that we talked about. But um, it really helped that was it a was there a lot of work to do even with someone helping you? Yes, but I recommend getting a support team. Um, and this group was fabulous. They they did all the work. And I took the loan out and I paid them. I took a loan out just for a little under a hundred grand and they charged me 2,800 to do all the paperwork. Okay. It was really good value. I thought considering I didn't have to do it. Yeah. <laughs> now did, did the bank guarantee to get the loan? Did they guarantee we would get it? Yeah. No, okay. no, they have a good strike rate, Okay, but, um, no, they partnered us with a bank. That was the other part they did was it wasn't, I don't know if it was, a, it might have been a bank, but they partnered us with the SBA bank okay. um, that helped us, that finalized and gave us the loan and all that sort of stuff. Um, and my most uncomfortable part was sharing all my personal information as part of the business, but it's part of the process. Yeah. Um, and I think the key to that was asking for the right amount. How do you determine that? We worked with our partner, but we also looked about what do, what do we need? Um, you know, did we want to take on more? Yeah, but we looked at what is our what is the impact of our payment? Because the payments, the SBA terms are great. One, if you get a loan, I mean, we're paying a small amount. It's over a ten year period, so it really makes it manageable for us. So we looked at all those factors and said, this is this is what we need. If we get more, it's going to put us in a little bit of a leverage position, yeah. and, and and so and and they told us they also the bank also told us, hey, this is the amount we'll give us give you. We took less, yeah. but I think that helps. If if you if, if the bank and everyone's excuse me says 150, and and you only need 100, take 100, and then that's a positive. You getting the loan, but it's 
And for the loan, did you have to? I guess you had you had to tell the bank what the money's going to be used for. In general, there are certain things that could be used for. Yeah, um, I don't think they were going to. They didn't let you do capital investment. Yeah. So it was mostly business operations, which made it easy. That's yeah. what we wanted it yeah. for. But we couldn't have bought a building or anything. Okay. So one thing I think a lot of entrepreneurs get wrong is like, like I think if you have a company, you got you got to be like be. I won't say like a public persona, but you know, you got pretty in the public, right? You yeah. got me on social media, you got me on LinkedIn, you got people who know who you are. How do you approach like building a public, like letting people know who you are so you can build your business? Well, I think that's that's been the challenge, right? Is I had a lot of word of mouth and you know, people who worked with us before. So I do think we have a we have a good website and I think that helps. Um, that was something that I committed to at the beginning. But I was talking earlier about my mar- the marketing plan. I realized we weren't getting what we needed out of social media. We we're social media heavy. And we were trying to figure out the matrix that is, the, is, is social media. And we realized, okay, it's better if our customers are talking about us than us. And, yes, there's some things we want to put out. I have thoughts, and I do some writing, so I want to get those things out. But, I, again, I looked. We thought about okay, what is our skill set? What what is my skill set? What is what is Josh's skill set? What is Chris's skill set? How do we get those out there? So we've dabbled in advertising to our act to our client base. When you say advertising, you mean like like paid ads on Facebook and Instagram? You mean like a traditional one? I did a traditional one because in in local government in particular, they are active on those, but they're more active in their trade magazines. Okay, so we advertise there. We we go to a we we're going to our second trade show in October. What's that going to be at? It's in it's in Wenatchee. It's okay. uh, the APWA American Public Works Association okay. Washington okay. chapter. So those are people, right? Those are the people we work with. I do. Uh, Chris does. Uh, some of them work directly with some of the clients that Josh has. So we we know that's a good investment for us um, to go to. So that's we're going to go do that. Uh, we look again podcasting. I realize there's an opportunity for me to share our program and share how we do business and 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 help people understand that um, you know they're not alone. They can get out there and get help. We're here to help. We also will take their help, you know, in their business. So um, there's that part. And we also realize that you know engaging with people is really part of our business. And, and it's one of the reasons that we're successful. So we, we've set up everything to engage with people individually if we can and in groups. So I do speaking engagements as well. Got a couple of those in October and a number of podcasts. And that's just a way to get out there and get people to know who we are as people. I think it's can you cool. talk about how you got your first customer, like the process of finding your first customer? Yeah, to, mine was weird. I actually... Um, my first customer in, as a consultant was, I think I described earlier a little bit, is that I, someone called me and said, we need this work and your name keeps coming up. I wasn't a consultant yet. So then I went to the consultant piece. Uh, I went to the consultant person and she brought me in and all that. My first client as a business of my own actually came through um, another company, Robert Half. I had a 
someone I'd work with. I'd work with Robert Half and some of my clients because they needed temporary employees. So I, I worked with them and I had a rep that I worked with and and we'd done a number of projects together and her and I had had, had created a good business relationship and we talk regular. And she they had a they had a, a job, a, an organization needed needed an interim leader and needed a change process done. And so they facilitated it. And so I had a, another business. We were working for one business to work with another one, and then they were paying my business. So it was really it was interesting, but um, um, took a little bit of the profit profitability off. But it was a great way to start because I had a little bit of support system from another, another business. I had a rep that I worked with for Robert Half and um, – Project was a difficult one, but we got through it. And, uh, and then I, I ended up having a ton of them after that, from word of mouth, and people found me on LinkedIn, and we, uh, we got crazy busy. So, what was a, a potential customer comes to you and they want to you know, use the services? Do like all three of y'all have to agree to take this customer on? Is it like this one person does? How's that work? Yeah, we look at who who's the best person to do it. Um, if it's a big change cultural process, it's, it's Josh or I, and um, and it depends. If it's local government, it's me. If it's uh, um, um, if it's food and beverage, it's him. But we also we meet with the client. We do a pre scoping meeting where we meet with them, and uh, usually that's Josh and I will meet with them and and. They will tell us, and then we'll do it. We'll come back with a okay. Here's what we see needs to be done, and they kind of agree and or disagree, and then we tell them this is who's going to do it. If they differ from that, we're we're willing to talk. Has this ever happened? Like customer comes to you, you do all this kind of stuff. We we'll say you and Josh say we're going to take on as, as a customer. Yeah. But the third guy was like, I don't know. I have a bad feeling about this. Like I don't know if you take this on. Not yet. Not yet. Okay. Yeah. I mean. Chris hasn't jumped in in that way because he's busy with clients. He's doing mostly work, and we're we're he's coming into that. Um, we have had a couple that we haven't followed up with because of that. We all three talked about it and said, "Yeah, that's not really in our line of business." Um, we had a number of those, but um, if that happened, we would listen and talk it out because you know believe in the vibe and yeah. in in people's intuition so how do all three of you stay on the same page so to speak um it helps that we're all you know the business serves our our each of our individual purposes but um we make sure we're doing what we like to do we have a meeting every every friday the three of us get together and talk about because in because we do that i live in in south of seattle Josh lives in the uh, Olympia area, and Chris lives in Arizona. Oh wow! So we we he does a lot of remote work. Okay. So we we have that dynamic. Um, we do get together as much as we can. He does come up here um, regularly. Uh, he, well, all three of you at the trade show. So that's one of the another positive of the trade show is the three of us get together and we get to spend the week together. And uh, so to me, it's about modeling what we teach other people to do is a plan of doing a fourth person anytime soon yeah we'll love to expand um 
we we have a fourth person on the team, uh, Lisa. She's my executive assistant, okay. and she supports us all and does. I, I guess I mean another fourth person. Yeah, yeah, as far as a consultant, yes. Uh, to, to me, to do the work, it takes a certain skill set and a certain willingness to to be ultra humble and to put yourself in a toxic situation and be able to protect yourself. Um, but yeah, we're looking for anybody who who listens and says, you know, I really am interested in maybe doing some of that work. Yeah, what kind of speaking games have you done in the past or are you looking to do in the future? Um, I've done group ones uh, where I've, you know, done groups of a couple hundred, you know, talking about whatever subject, usually teams um, or, or toxic work culture. Now I'm guessing that you get paid for these. How do you determine the, 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 like the pricing for these um, engagements? I have a... Um, I work with a now service who does that for me. Okay. And they determined it. But before that, it was based on um, there's a few of them I did for nothing. There, there's a few of them I did for, you know, how much. It depends on the organization. Mm-hmm. I, I did a couple of them for nonprofits mm-hmm. that were, they said, well, we got this amount to pay you. And I said, okay, that's enough. I'll yeah. do it. Um, so it's, and to me, that's, I think it comes down to, how much people want me to speak and, <laughs> and, and, um, you know, whether my message is resonating or not, and, you know, value is determined by the market there. What's the most people you've spoken, spoken in front of so far? Uh, probably five, 600. Or okay. So. And do you find the way you prepare for a speech is different based on the size of the group? No, not really. It's, it's really about the, the subject and what, where the group might be with that. Um, we did a book launch, which was for my book, and we didn't, it wasn't a big group. It was about 100. And, but it was very difficult because everybody in the room I knew. <laughs> so, um, you know, my wife was there, my kids were there, all that. So, which was made it very fun, but also doing, you know, talking about what I needed to talk about um, was challenging. But I think it's more about what the audience needs and is looking for um, that I can give than uh, than the number. So how do you approach it? Like do you like practice, 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 rehearse, 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 or you like wing it, or you like you like you know have like bullet points in your head and just talk off those? How do you approach it? Um, I I prep. I don't I don't do I do a lot of it. Um, I believe in reacting to the audience. So if I'm going in a direction and, you know, they're snoozing, then I'm in the wrong space. So I'm here to do something. I'm here to actually, my, my goal is always to um, touch them emotionally if I can. That's how they can be impacted in some way. And so I'm going to prepare with statistics. And, and I know that when you communicate, there are four main communication styles. So I want to connect with all four of them during the process. And then I want to watch the the group and and play off of them, kind of counterpunch, as it were, so I can give them the best experience that I can. So when you're speaking, let's suppose it's a hundred people, right? You know, like fifty have the phones out, or you're like, man, I'm doing something wrong. Have the phones out, or you're like, okay, have the phones out. They must be like tweeting about it or putting on social media, yeah, like. I, yeah, I to me, I don't worry about the phones anymore. Okay. To me, I'm looking at their eyes. Okay. I'm looking at their body. What? How are they reacting? You know, if 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 they're 
even with a phone in your hand, if you're sitting forward, you're 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 engaged, and there's signals to me that you're engaged. And I, I, if I'm looking at a hundred people, I I'm I want that seventy percent rule. If seventy are engaged, I'm in pretty good shape. Yeah. If 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 I'm at the ten range, I'm not I'm not yeah. engaging them. They're not hearing. Well, they have the phone off like that. You probably okay. They, they might yeah. be recording me. That's right. <laughs> and, and they're gonna put them on their social media. That's right. So. Um, again, I think it's, it's about that engagement. It's about creating rapport between me and people. And when I'm doing that, when I know I'm doing that, and that's great. And a lot of times if someone's going to change you or, or remember something, you generally have to touch them emotionally. So that's what I try to do. And so you said you also wrote a book. I did write a book. Can you talk about that? Yeah. It's called the human centered team. And so it's based on, it talks about the, the, well, the Amazon or, or you actually published it. No, it's, we published it through Amazon. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it, uh, it was, it took a year. So when they tell you that it takes a year to write a book, it takes a year to write a book to a day. Actually. Um, I started the book and then we did the uh, release, um, exactly a year later. Um, it was a, it was a great experience. Um, I, I, it, it was a lot more personal than I thought it would be. Um, yes, I told, talked about the Akramov method and we talk about the pillars, but we also talk about the keys, uh, to building a successful team. And then I have stories that relate to it from my life and how I learned those lessons. And when we started, I didn't think it would be that. I thought it would be just more sterile and it wasn't. And, but I'm happy with the way it turned out. And when was the release? Uh, January nineteenth of twenty three. Okay, so just pretty recently. Yeah, yeah. And how 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 the book sales been for you? Yeah, not great, but yeah. again, it's that marketing thing. Mm-hmm. You know, I think if we do, if I'd have been doing this starting in January, mm-hmm. it might have been different. But um, so, why did you decide to write a book? I had it on my list always okay. for the last fifteen years. Um, did fits and starts, but got connected with someone who uh, was a Help me kind of get through the process and help me organize it right and and uh, and I worked with a closely with an editor who was fantastic and we really connected um, but I really uh, I wanted to do it. I knew I had things that I could share um, and that would help people and and I also knew that if it was another thing we could use in the business, like when I do trainings. Can you talk about the book writing process, like how that worked for you, or maybe how it didn't work in some cases? Um, it actually did. the The hard part was finding the time because we were super I was super busy. You know, I wrote it in twenty two, started in January twentieth of twenty two, and then we published January nineteenth of twenty three. And I so there were times when I like we talked about earlier. I come home at nine o'clock. I got a deadline to deliver a piece of the book. I got to go do this. Um, one of the things that was nice, though, is I didn't do it all typing. Um, we did uh, a lot of, we started the book where we did a, what we called a writer's retreat, and I talked for six hours. And we started developing it from, from that recorded talk. And then I did a number of recordings throughout. So that's one of the things we found out was that it was 
So you would record it and you had to, you go back later and like type your voice notes up or someone else did that for you? Someone else did that. Okay. And there's some AI stuff that does that now, although we didn't use it. Um, but, and then the editor went through it and, um, and hacked around in it. And then we just kind of went back and forth. I think that's the, the creative process of it is something I didn't understand when we started is that it, it's, it, it's not linear. You don't write the book linear. We wrote sections of it and then moved things around. So it's not like you like you got to write ten pages a day. You just yeah, no, you did. You did. Um, like I said, we we did that retreat and then we kind of put all that in words and then we started massaging it and then it started to evolve into a into a, hey, this makes sense. This is a chapter. This is a chapter. Hey, this is a follow up. Hey, this is a story. So then we we um, the editor. One of the things that I really liked about Jonathan was he said, let's, let's make this like a movie. So we, we tell the, we tell the concept and then we do a cutaway to a scene where you tell a story. So that's how it's set up. And, um, I also wanted to make sure that this was not a long, difficult read, um, because I wanted frontline employees to read it as much as I wanted leaders to read it. So it's not a long read. Everyone's told me who's read it. It's a very quick read. It's very, it moves real fast. So that's what I wanted. Um, because if you've got someone who's a frontline employee who eventually will become a leader, but wants to impact their organization in a positive way and is feeling desperate and they read the book and they have some, can take some things from it, I think that's what I wanted to do. What percent of the book sales do you have to give Amazon? How's that work? Um, Amazon's actually, it's pretty easy to work with. You don't have to have a percentage of sales. Okay. You set up an account with them. People order it. They pub, they print it and send it to them. Okay. There's no minimums or anything like that. All right. So, um, we talked about this earlier a little bit, but how do you take care of yourself? That's been a lifelong journey. <laughs> um, for sure. Um, for, for me, uh, I need to exercise regularly. It's a stress relief, but it also, you know, in my younger life, I was an athlete, and staying in touch with that is important um, to me. Um, So one of the things I've learned recent as I've gotten older is I don't need to, and I've got a coach, and I recommend that. Um, This is the, I've just started working with one the last three months, and he's fantastic, and he helps me be accountable and all that, but he's, he's customized it for me. So I need to exercise, but I don't need to exercise every day. And I don't have to, I'm not trying to make the Olympics, right? I'm just trying to be in shape and feel good. My goals change now to, I want to be able to do what I do, whatever I want. So if I want to go golf, go golf. And if I want to go, you know, hike 10 miles, I I can do that without killing myself. Um, I think the other so, so that's the physical part. I also, you know, I shared with you before that I have, I've had migraine headaches for 10 years. And, and for me, it's almost di- fully diet, diet related. So we've changed the diet. I've only had one in the last 45 days. I'm used to having 25 a month. So for me, that's what I learned that is that I really need to watch what I put in my body. And that's very personal. For everyone, um, I also learned that I can't count on the medical community to be there for me in that way. Mm-hmm. 
So went through that entire process, um, which they were helpful because they eliminated everything else. And then I was able to kind of finish the, the job and, and with the help of my coach. So there's that. So that's the physical part. Um, then there's the, we talked earlier about gratitude. I have a number of practices that I do to keep my emotional health going well, which is, you know, showing gratitude, being humble, um, taking time to do what I love to do. That's, that's a hobby, you know, going to the horse races, uh, um, spending time with the family, uh, watching certain sports, Hopefully the Mariners can win tonight. Um, you know, those sort of things that that are just take my mind off of the grind and the work that I do. Um, and then uh, the, the last one is the kind of the mental health piece, is making sure that um, I'm in a good space and that when I'm not, I, talk, I, have, I have someone to talk to, someone to, a support system in place. So that I don't let, um, you know, our, our family, it, you know, grew up. I mean, we're half Russian. My grandfather came from Russia, and we kind of took that mantra when I was younger: is we just don't, as men, we don't talk about things. And my dad was a police officer. That made it just even a little more worse. So eventually, we we broke that pattern, but um, making sure that I share what I need to share. That I, um, that I don't let, if I'm feeling down, that I don't let it manifest itself. And then if it does, and things start going bad, that I, I go get support, I go get a coach, I go get you know someone to talk to, and I make sure I'm expressing that. The other part that it, I think that we miss a lot in our society is making sure that you mourn loss. I'm very in touch with mourning loss, and loss doesn't have to be another human being or a pet. It can be losing a job. It can be losing a friend. It can be, um, you know, it can be selling your house. I mean, it, it's a lot of different things. But understanding, so I, I stay really in touch with myself as far as that goes. What am I feeling a sense of loss or elation or whatever? And what's that about? So I think self. I spend a lot of. I have a, some self awareness practices to keep me up to speed. On. So every day, how do you make sure you focus on priorities one, two, and three versus priorities number seventy-five and seventy-six? <laughs> I have a list. I'm a list guy, um, but it's not a it's not an exhaustive list. Each week, I I organize myself. I have a one-page list, and I have it broken down into a number of factors. One is always a what project I'm working on. So if I'm writing, I have a writing one. Um, I have one for the business. I have one for the clients. I have one for correspondence, I have one for health, and then I have one for kind of family life. So if you, it reflects my values. So, um, and it only has so many lines in it. And once the lines fill up, that's all I got. I don't add any more. I just, it, I, I will redo, I redo it every Sunday night. Um, most of the time, it's not all full. And so every week, I, pri- I each of them are numbered, and I go about doing them that way. So as an example, this week, um, we're doing some invoicing in our business, and I have a part to play in that. So I have that near the top of my list, and I put the, the day that it's due next to it. 
just a W for Wednesday. And then I, I go about doing prioritizing each day. And I think it's important to do it every morning. So I have my weekly. I know what I'm going to concentrate on and what's on that list is what it is. Now, yes, there's emergencies that pop up, but most of them, that's rare. Really, if you think about it. Um, and so that's what I focus on. I just work down my list. I don't beat myself up if I don't finish it. <laughs> if I don't finish it, I just reprioritize next week and those things that I didn't get done move up. So how about this? Suppose there's something on your list, right? It's not probably one, two, or three, but it's on your list, right? Yeah. And you notice after three weeks, man, this thing's still on my list. Yeah. You're like, okay, obviously it's not important enough to be on the list. You just take it off or like how, how, how do you do that? It depends on what it is. So what I do is evaluate it. So as an example, there, um, I, um, as I'm walking and running, I need, if I don't have the right shoes and they're out of shape, I don't, my, my feet will hurt. So I know I just took my last pair of shoes out of the box. So now I'm going to order another one so I have one on hand. That's been on my list for three weeks. I know it needs to be done before my other ones wear out, which I know is a couple of months away. But I'm not going to take it off because I don't want <laughs> it to go away. So that's an example of one where it would stay on my list for a okay. while. I also have one that I, I write on the bottom that says future list. So um, if there's something I want to add to next week or whatever. But um, when I get super busy, those things can fall off. Um, and I don't want them to. And 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 then the whole process of, you know, they'll be at the bottom of the list and they kind of move up and then. And if they keep getting moved to the bottom, you ask yourself, is that really, do I really want to do it? Or is it something I need to do? And sometimes the answer is, you know, you're fooling yourself. You're not <laughs> going to do that. So I don't do so it. So how do you go about protecting your time? Um, I'm very protective of my schedule. So, you know, if, if, I let, if I let my schedule get out of control, it, it will make my life out of control. Uh couple rules around that. I don't schedule meetings back to back. Um, I require 15 minutes in between. Um, and, and I will reschedule them or not accept them. So I think that's the other part is just because someone sends me an invite doesn't mean I have to accept <laughs> it. <laughs> and it's always a negotiation. So I can negotiate a different day with them. And I have to evaluate whether what the priority is there. Um, the other part is, is that, and this is something I've, given on in the past but i no longer will which is my workouts and things go on my schedule and they will not move um, i come first so you're early morning workout guy midday yeah, late I, like, day. I like i like i like the morning morning's okay yeah that's my preference and it's always worked for me that way and the good thing about that is if i if i gotta work six to six then i just get up at four and do it you go to do your gym or you work out at home? No, I work out at home. I've okay. got a um, workout space that I've set up. That's my preference. So how do you do, for lack of a better term, how do you deal with needy clients? Like someone's like always calling you, always emailing you, always wanting more of your time. Um, I think I talked about earlier about boundaries. Um, very clear about those. So they know that when, when and I tell them, you know, during the week, you email me at 11 p.m. and if I'm up and I'm watching, I will answer you. Um, but on the weekends, if I'm doing something, 
I've got other priorities, then I won't. Mm -hmm. And I think that's being very clear with them about what your boundaries are at the beginning mm -hmm. of the process. Um, and that's also a lesson learned, right? Some, some you don't think are going to be needy and are, and then they're needy at different times. I think that's the other part is I need to understand because of the work we do, there are times that they're going to be needy and I need to plan for it. So I need to understand that, hey, when the process, change process is at its peak and everyone's stressed, the leader, when people are breaking down at work, the leader's going to call me and I need to make sure that I'm available for them. There are times that can't happen throughout the entire process, but but I, I need to be aware of when they need me. What's the max number of clients you and your, your team can handle at one time? Well, we had five at one time last year. Most of them were mine. Um, and if I'm if I'm doing just consultant work, I can handle three at a time. Okay. Josh can probably handle that amount. Chris probably can handle that amount. If we're embedded, if we're doing a lot of specific work or I'm doing an interim leader, I can only do one at a time. So you were talking about your company some. Can, can you go more detail like how, why you started, what you focus on now, and the future vision for your company? Sure. The the I uh, I started it because the company that I was working with before was um, is a great company and they do fantastic work. We just do different work, and it wasn't always. It wasn't. We weren't getting the synergy that we both really wanted and and i wanted you know being a control freak i wanted a little control um and um and so that's why i started it uh where we've I, i've shared today about our marketing piece and how how that has changed um where we're going is i mentioned earlier i definitely want to find some partners to help employees before they get into a workplace. So to get them ready to promote, to, to be a resource, because there's a, not a lot of resources out there for someone who, and there are some, but, but there aren't a lot of them where, uh, say, a high school senior is doesn't know where to go really, needs to get a job, isn't going to go to college or a college graduate who doesn't, you know, doesn't have a profession that's just to jump into, um, you know, like a lawyer or a, or a doctor or something. What, you know, having a resource to help them find a job, find the right fit, under, um, be able to manage their hiring process, not for them, but with them those sort of things. We just see a market for that. So we're looking at, we're looking at doing something there. Um, we definitely want to help develop more, more and better leaders. That's definitely a mission of mine. And so we want to be able to give classes and do coaching and um, that sort of thing. So continuing to get that out there um, and continuing to, uh, we want to build our team so we can have a bigger impact. We would like to, um, you know, I'd like to be able to teach concepts that we use to other people so they can go into other organizations and do the work. So, Colleen, is there anything else that I, actually, I didn't ask you or anything else you want to talk about? 
I don't think so. You did pretty <laughs> pretty good. You asked me a lot of stuff. So not that I can think of. All right. So Glenn, can you give us any last minute advice or wisdom or anything you want to talk about? Yeah, to to me the um I, I think that everyone deserves a, a good workplace. And and if you're in a bad one and about somewhere between eighty and ninety percent of you are in some form or fashion. Um you don't have to leave. You know, they talk about on LinkedIn, well, you, if you get a bad manager, you leave. If you get a bad organization, you leave. That doesn't mean you're going to find a good one. So you got to make that decision whether you want to stay there or not. But understand that you can have a better organization. And as leaders, I know you're busy. I know you're understaffed. I know you got to take on things that you, you didn't think you would have to. Some of you don't have any training at this at all. And you, 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 think you're not doing a good job and in some ways you are some ways you aren't ask for help get help call us yeah that's awesome but find someone to help you get through this and help your organization become a good one um, because if the bottom line makes a big difference but the human impact of that working in a toxic workplace is killing our world so that's really our message is we want you to have a great we can help you do that. Great. We can't. Good. I just want you to have a great <laughs> workplace. Glenn, thanks for your time, Dave. Really appreciate it. Thank you. I really enjoyed the conversation. And to our listeners, thank you for your time as well. Remember to be great every day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Jason Kavnis Experience. Be sure to connect with us across social media at Kavnis HR. Thank you. And remember to be great every day. You've got to pump it up, don't you know? Pump it up.